Throughout all of gaming's history, franchises strive to pull in an audience through interactive gameplay, likable characters, and an immersive story which keeps players on the edge of their seat. Such competition often leads to oversaturated and easily predictable plots that become forgotten to time. It's those who are willing to break the mold and mess with the very core and emotions of its players which leave a lasting impact that they'll soon not forget. A franchise which was willing to lift its players up to the peaks of hope, only to plunge them into the depths of despair, is Danganronpa. Danganronpa. Released on November 25th, 2010, Danganronpa was written by Kazutaka Kodaka and developed by Spike Chunsoft. The game was originally prototyped under the title Distrust. The premise and setup for the plot remained almost the same. Fifteen unique high school students would have to solve a series of murders within an allotted period of time. The art style, while still animated, was much more realistic and gritty, which came across in the more gruesome elements of the game, particularly its executions. The character of Junko was killed by a simple guillotine, and the blood was all notably red. Such grisly aesthetics made it specially difficult to market to a wider audience. Distrust was inevitably cancelled and reworked to a more market-friendly product. The style goes for a self-described aesthetic called Psychopop. The blood was all changed to pink, and everything was given a much more energetic and fun vibe. Distrust prototype would go on to be what was the base for Danganronpa Trigger Happy Havoc. These murder mystery visual novels keep the player in as much of a dazed and confused state as the characters themselves. Unfolding the secrets of the school, world, and even classmates before your very eyes, its nature of revealing details very sporadically and often through sometimes missable interactions leaves much of the chronology scattered and unorganized. Part of the fun of Danganronpa is piecing the puzzle together, whether that be the murder mysteries you're forced to solve or the much larger timeline of events. So, I decided it was time I collected all of the information possible on the story and characters and gave you the complete, unabridged timeline of Danganronpa. The whole story begins thanks to a single man named Izaru Kamakura. Not much is known about the individual himself, but for whatever reason, he had a desire to create and spread hope around the world. Hope, by proxy, represents the best humanity has to offer. He believed hope came from the individual, people with extraordinary talents, and if he could nurture and guide them, helping them unlock their full potential, then it could in turn spread hope elsewhere in the world. This could most effectively be done during the developmental stages of one's life, particularly their school life, high school to be exact. By nurturing the talents of high schoolers by the time of graduation, they'd be fully prepared to enter a career in their given talent. This whole idea came to fruition as he founded Hope's Peak Academy, a school designed to research and develop the talents of predominantly high school-aged children. This wasn't like any other school, however, where students were allowed to qualify through an entrance exam. Instead, it was the school itself who scouted its students, where if you were chosen, you were allowed to enter and be one of their chosen ultimates. The only qualifications were that they had to currently be enrolled in high school, and they were at minimum 16 years of age. 
The curriculum was not that of a normal school. Instead, due to the wide variety of separate skills, the students were encouraged to develop their own individual talents. They were to later be judged in a practical exam halfway through the year, where they would demonstrate their abilities in front of a panel of dignitaries and experts. The whole process would be broadcast and reported on by the media in order to give hope to everyone watching. Failure to do so would result in expulsion from the academy altogether. Hope's Peak was a major success, and over the next few hundred years, the school gained a prestigious reputation. Those who graduated had almost guaranteed success in life. While Izuru has since long passed, various headmasters had taken up the mantle of leadership, guiding the future generations to a world of hope. However, at some point during its history, the headmaster slowly ceased to have control as the highest authority in the school. Instead, it went to the steering committee, a group of scientists who all research human talent. They are primarily led by four individuals. They have absolute say in what Hope's Peak does with its finances and resources, however they control things from the shadows. Any controversies the academy finds itself in will often get blamed on the headmaster at the time. Speaking of which, the headmaster at the time, Kazuo Tengen, was stepping down and passing on the responsibility over to Jin Kirigiri. The Kirigiri lineage comes from a long line of detectives, and thus his family was very strict about him becoming one himself. However, he refused. He showed an unusual and very deep interest in the premise of talent, even believing luck to be one itself. His father Fujito loathed and ended up disowning him for not following in the footsteps of his ancestors. He was a disgrace to the family name. Naturally, Jin would inevitably be drawn to Hope's Peak as a career, however, in his personal life, he fell in love. At some point in time, he had married a woman from the Uzuchi family. The two were inseparable, and they eventually had a daughter whom they would name Kyoko. The two raised her through her infant years and into her early childhood. Even one of Jin's friends, Koichi Kizakura, got to see how much he loved her. He and Jin had known each other for quite a long time, and Koichi would later find a profession at Hope's Peak as well as one of their talent scouts. News of Kyoko's existence eventually reached Jin's father, and he reinvited his son back into the family. However, his intent was filled with ulterior motives. If his son wouldn't be the heir to the Kirigiri detective clan, his granddaughter would. He began to train Kyoko in the strict teachings of detective work. While he and his father hated each other, the only reason they were even still communicating was thanks to Jin's wife, who supported him throughout it all. While Jin despised the fact that his daughter was being forced into the family traditions, he likely permitted it to satisfy his father in a type of middle ground. However, that all changed when his wife fell ill. When Kyoko was only seven years old, her mother was hospitalized due to a sickness and was on her deathbed. Kyoko and her grandfather were abroad, continuing their detective work. Jin attempted to reach out to them time and time again to tell her about her mother's condition. However, his father refused to aid his family. To him, detective work was far more important than even a dying family member. He refused to allow Kyoko to see her dying mother. She inevitably passed with only her husband by her side. To Jin, this was understandably the final straw. He severed all ties to his family whatsoever, with no intention of ever looking back. While he still loved Kyoko and would never forget her, his father would never hand her over, and so he kept custody of her for the foreseeable future. 
Fujito raised Kyoko to hate her father for abandoning the family's traditions. Despite this, Kyoko would grow to love her grandfather as he taught her everything she knew about detective work and would look out and protect her under any circumstance. But as for Jin, now with his professional life having come to a standstill, his focus became his career as the headmaster of Hope's Peak Academy. While he was Kazuo Tengen's successor, Jin still kept him on as an advisor to the school and worked closely with his longtime friend Koichi, who was responsible for scouting the students. On the surface, everything was running smoothly as should, but in the dark underbelly, a plan was brewing by the heads of the school. The steering committee sought to use the knowledge they had accrued over the years to no longer just nurture talent, but create it. They wanted to create an individual who was the embodiment of hope with every single talent known to man. A true symbol of hope. This concept was originally known as the Hope Cultivation Plan, however would also be known as the Izuru Kamakura Project, named after the founder of Hope's Peak. To fund this project, as well as having taken on some financial trouble in recent history, the steering committee came up with a way to pay for and fund everything without drawing negative attention from the public. For the first time in history, they opened Hope's Peak to normal, everyday students. By paying a large financial fee, students lacking any talent whatsoever could enter the school in the reserve course department. Unlike the Ultimates, these students were treated as just normal high school students, forced to stick to a schedule and attend classes. By all intents and purposes, it was a normal education, but for the prestige of having attended Hope's Peak. It was thanks to the reputation they had built up that so many people were willing to pay the price and attend, and they happily paid the price. All the while, neither they nor their parents knew that they were just cash cows for the steering committee. While the public at large didn't think much of anything about Hope's Peak's doings, not being aware of its more shady practices, it did catch the attention of some former students who had since graduated the academy, particularly Kiyosuke Munakata. He was the super high school level student council president of the 74th class. He is an incredible leader and too believes much in the concept of hope and wanting to spread it. However, during his time attending the academy, he had caught wind of some of the very negative rumors surrounding its practices. Upon graduation, he thought it was in need of new leadership and Jin Kirigiri wasn't fit for the position. Munakata's goal was to stay close and in good faith with the academy and particularly Jin. He decided to open an overseas branch of Hope's Peak where he himself would slowly climb up to the same influence and ultimately seize power over the academy in an effort to restore the highly respected academy to that status. Jin was none the wiser to his plan and even assisted Munakata trusting him a great deal. Kiyosuke's building was also being funded by the Reserve Corps students, though he wouldn't know for some time. Despite the various rumors floating around, if he wanted to get to the bottom of the dark side of Hope's Peak, he needed evidence and people close to the ground. This is where his friends come in. Chisa Yukizome, the ultimate housekeeper, and Juzo Sakakura, the ultimate boxer. The three of them were in the same class and had become very close friends throughout their time. They had a nigh unbreakable bond and determined the day of their graduation that they could do anything if they stuck together, which is where Kiyosuke's concern regarding Hope's Peak was first expressed. After some time had passed, it was devised that both Chisa and Juzo were to take up jobs at Hope's Peak and investigate subtly. Juzo got a job as security, while Chisa was to become a teacher. Kiyosuke personally recommended her to Jin, which he promptly hired her because of. She was to be the assistant to Koichi Kizakura for Class 77B. 
Due to his drunken nature much of the time, he had her take most of the responsibility teaching his students. However, Koichi's intuition still proved sharp as after learning that Kiyosuke had recommended Chisa, he warned Jin to be wary of him as his power and influence had been growing and he didn't want his position as headmaster to be overthrown. Nevertheless, Chisa began her new undercover job by teaching the students of Class 77B, those of who would go on to become some of the most important figures in the timeline. Nekomaru Nidai, the ultimate team manager, Behind every great athlete, there is a manager. Despite his large build and incredibly healthy physique, initially Nekomaru didn't have an interest in sports due to his own physical condition. He was born with a heart defect that left him bedridden and confined to the hospital for much of his childhood. Doctors told him that he'd only live until the age of 20. He was a weak and feeble individual, but this was just the life he was forced to live. Frequent trips to the hospital made it almost impossible for him to gain friends. But it was at this hospital that he met a boy named Daisuke. He too was suffering from the same medical condition as himself. Daisuke was a team manager, well-loved amongst his players, and Nekomaru saw just how much all of them cared for each other. The two got to know each other quite well as Daisuke shared his passion for being a team manager despite his condition. Eventually, though, Daisuke's illness took him completely, and he died before he ever got to witness his team win their championship. Inspired by his story of strength and dedication, Nekomaru chose to continue in his footsteps to become a team manager himself. He took on a more healthy lifestyle, building up his own strength and going on to gain a reputation as one of the best team managers out there, even able to take even seemingly hopeless teams and lead them to championships. He gained a great understanding of the human body, even being able to determine which sport an athlete would be good at just by looking at their physique. He is very boisterous and passionate and can lead many to find him intimidating, but he's a very kind-hearted and supportive individual who isn't afraid to show his own emotions. He does have a hidden talent as a masseur. He possesses an incredible massaging technique he developed himself, which maximizes blood flow, which helps his athletes grow and prepare for training. But he uses this very sparsely, as many become addicted to it very quickly. His dedication for his teams and athletes, only ever wanting the best for them, is what has earned him the position of super high school level coach. Sonia Nevermind, the ultimate princess. Born into the kingdom of Novoselic, Sonia was destined from birth to be their princess. Novoselic is an extremely small country governed by absolute monarchy. Despite this, the people have absolute faith in the royalty as they, time and time again, have protected the kingdom and its people from neighboring countries. The population is small, but the people within it live comfortable lives in a thriving economy. Sonia was forced to learn many different social etiquettes and procure knowledge about things such as leadership, foreign languages, economics, international law, and diagnostic medicine. Her life and her social status was unlike anyone else's, so she didn't have many friends and nor people who could understand her true feelings. She was always a princess before she was a person. She was to value the country and the people over herself. She does have an academically curious mind. Considering her country has a peculiar set of laws, culture, and tradition, she always had an interest in learning about much of the outside world's countries and languages. 
She, in modern day, is able to speak, read, and write in 30 languages so far. Because of her curious mind and wanting to expand her knowledge, it gave her an interest in many topics that were forbidden by her country, such as the occult and popular television dramas. She is incredibly polite and wishes to be treated like a normal high school girl when enrolled into Hope's Peak, but can often come off as odd due to her unfamiliarity with Japanese culture and phrases. My femininity is hella boss. Her dedication to her country and willingness to put it over herself, willing to die a meaningful death for it and its people, is what has made her the super high school level princess. Hyoko Sayanji, the ultimate traditional dancer. Hyoko was born as the heiress to the Sayanji clan, a family that ran a school for Japanese traditional dance. While it may not seem like it, there was a lot of stake and jealousy in this profession. Various members of her family had been targets of assassinations and conspiracy. And considering Hyoko was the heiress, she too was the target of such attacks, some of which were just pranks. While still harmful, not nearly as ruthless as others had faced. Things like dead mice scattered over her bed, pins in her shoes, and poisoned food were simply just part of the job according to her. She gained a nasty and distrustful attitude towards others as a result and didn't have many friends. She initially lived with her father and cared deeply for him and he her. He was incredibly protective of Hyoko taking whatever harm came her way on his own shoulders. He loved to watch her dance, however, he was only related to her via marriage, not blood. Because of this, he had a very low rank within the family, and so Hiyoko's grandmother took her away to follow the family's traditions and train to become head of the clan. Despite this, Hiyoko still loves her grandmother as she took good care of her. Through her trainings, Hiyoko came to the belief that there was a class system she was a part of. She herself resided in the noble class and everyone else was a slave meant to serve them. Hiyoko has a deep love and respect for Japanese culture and tradition and it comes across in her dancing, which is exactly why she's the super high school level classical dancer. Kazuichi Soda, the ultimate mechanic. Soda's childhood was a difficult one both professionally and personally. He and his father ran a family bike shop. They had a lot of business from customers often asking to fix or maintain their bikes. But they couldn't sell anything and so they were always low on money. But Soda did get plenty of hands-on practice building and fixing machines because of it. Even as a child, he had a habit of disassembling and repairing items just to gain knowledge. From a young age, he learned to fix things from kids' toys to even household appliances. He was always inventing new things, largely vehicles or things that get turned into vehicles. His passion project is a bike that has a top speed of 585 miles per hour. He knows it's not street legal, nor would he be able to use it himself, but nevertheless, he's eager to finish it. But you see, the reason Soda chose to work at the family shop was due to his own father's unreliability. Soda knew full well the type of man he was, as he was frequently beaten by him. As a result, Soda was a very skittish child, easily scared and picked on because of it. While he allowed the bullying at first, he eventually decided to change his appearance altogether. He got rid of his glasses, changed his hair color, sharpened his teeth, and donned a more punk look, which intimidated others. Though the facade was often prone to failing due to his personality staying the same. His never-ending tinkering and inventions is what got him the title of super high school level mechanic. Mikan Sumuki, the ultimate nurse. As a child, Mikan had it just about as harsh as anyone could imagine. 
She was abused physically, emotionally, and sexually by both her family and other students. Those who bullied her often beat her up, cut her hair, threw darts at her, splashed her with water, smeared her with mud, burnt her with cigarettes, had her take on their debt, eat bugs, strip, act like an animal, and on top of all of that, she didn't have a single friend. Her self-esteem was reduced to nothing. The psychological damage she incurred shaped her future life. She became extremely paranoid and meek and convinced herself that it was better to be bullied than it was to be ignored. She feared being alone so much that she began to allow and even encourage the bullying brought on to her. Constantly having to endure so much physically and with no one to treat her wounds, Mikan was forced to treat herself. The more and more the bullying went on, the better she became in the practice of nursing. In fact, she took enjoyment from the power dynamic she had when nursing others. In this scenario, the nurse has all the power and the patient must rely on them. It was the only time Mikan had any control over a situation and whenever she's nursing, her personality is much more controlled and calm. She eventually became proficient in all abilities such as first aid, creating various medicines, and even surgery. She doesn't understand true positive and negative social interactions and has a difficult time navigating through them. Often she'll default into a state of submissiveness and self-deprecation as that's usually what's been demanded of her from the past. And on top of all of that, she is incredibly accident prone from time to time. Regardless of the severe psychological damage she was forced to endure, Mikan was scouted by Hope Speak Academy due to her skill as the super high school level health committee member. Fuyuhiko Kuzuryu, the ultimate Yakuza. Fuyuhiko is the heir to the Kuzuryu Yakuza clan. It is a rough and dangerous world, one of which he doesn't consider himself part of. While he tries to exert the persona of a rough and cutthroat leader as the clan wants him to be, he ultimately considers it nothing more than just bragging rights and acknowledges that he doesn't have the qualities of a true Yakuza. He considers the name to be a heavy burden more worthy to have gone to his little sister, Natsumi. Even the clan themselves believed that she was the reincarnation of her deceased uncle who was considered the strongest Kuzuryu in history. She had been given the opportunity several times to take his position, but declined due to her care for her brother. She only believed she was so great because she had Fuyuhiko to begin with. What makes him worthy of the title was his sense of pride and willpower. But Fuyuhiko's story doesn't end there as there was and always has been another important figure throughout his life, another student in Class 77B. Peko Pekoyama, the Ultimate Swordsman Abandoned at birth, Peko was taken in by the Kuzuryu family and trained to be the bodyguard and personal hitman to Fuyuhiko. The two were raised alongside each other where Peko was conditioned to be extremely loyal to him. She was taught to see her existence as nothing more than a tool for her master to use, calling into question her own humanity, all of which made it that much harder for her to express her true emotions. She protected him many times throughout his life. When his parents fought, almost resulting in his death being caught up in the aftermath, it was Pekko who shielded him. When Fuyuhiko went to the zoo and challenged the king of the monkeys to a fight, it was Pekko who had to step in and protect him. The two were even kidnapped at one point, but managed to escape into the mountains. Peko tried to cheer Fuyuhiko up, but only made him cry as she attempted to express emotions she was unfamiliar with, like smiling and consolation. Fuyuhiko saw straight through her facade and knew that in reality, she was just as frightened as he was. 
but it was thanks to her abilities as a swordsman that they eventually managed to be saved. The two understandably formed romantic feelings for each other, but found themselves uncertain whether or not to pursue such emotions as Pekka was meant to be a tool and Fuyuhiko wished that she could just be herself. Both of them were scouted by Hope's Peak Academy as the super high school level gangster and the super high school level swordsman. Akane Owari, the ultimate gymnast. Akane comes from a life of poverty. Her parents would frequently change, and she doesn't exactly hold a soft spot in her heart for the various individuals who are in charge of taking care of her. What she did gain, however, were many siblings, all of which she cared for deeply. Being the eldest, she felt as though it was her job to take care of, protect, and be their parental figure. It was made even more difficult due to where they were living, as it was not uncommon to find dead bodies in the mornings. Always on the brink of starving, Akane came to value food more than anything. She was always scavenging through trash cans, fighting other people over theirs, and foraging eggs from trees and the sort. It was a ruthless neighborhood, accentuated by the fact that she used to be chased down and beaten by men and the occasional stray dog. The men were often perverts, chasing to sexually harass her. Through her fleeing, she became quite good at parkour and traversing the environment. In fact, her pursuers eventually stopped once she became stronger than them. But unfortunately, it was a problem in her home as well. Her stepmother's boyfriends would often grope her and make her serve them food while not wearing any underwear. This was just the norm for Akane and the life she lived. To provide for her siblings, she had many jobs, the most prominent one being as a waitress. Doing so, she was at times capable of stealing leftovers to bring to her family. One patron of her restaurant was an old gymnastics coach who, too, used to grope her on occasion, telling her how fantastic her body was. He was the one who suggested that she do gymnastics, and while she resisted at first, she eventually decided to give it a shot. All of her experience of running from perverts proved valuable as she was an incredible natural talent. She eventually competed in tournaments for the money, and over time she earned enough to move to a new house with her siblings. Through her many experiences, she grew to have a keen intuition, trusting her gut whenever she needs to make a decision. It is because she cared for her siblings that she pursued gymnastics and became the super high school level gymnastics club member. Ryota Mitarai, the ultimate animator. Since he was a child, Ryota wished to spread hope through the world via his own anime. It, in a way, saved him from the cruel world he lived in, constantly being teased and made fun of for simply liking anime. Since childhood, he began drawing and animating, dedicating all of his being to his craft, valuing it more than even himself. He was often overworked and stretched to meet deadlines, however, his anime was truly magical. He could move people to tears in an instant, get them to feel whatever emotion it was he wanted them to feel, but it was all thanks to a certain trick. Secretly, his videos were subtly manipulating the viewers' brains through lights and imagery. In a way, it was brainwashing them. It's not something that he used for dark reasons, however, though it was enough to get him scouted as the ultimate animator. Ryota's experience also comes with an unexpected addition to Class 77. Due to being overworked, he would sometimes pass out in the dormitories of the school. One student saw him and chose to help him out. The Ultimate Imposter Born with no family to be a part of, no name to be referred to, and no identity to call their own, their life seemed without meaning and their existence undetected. The only thing they wanted was the one thing they couldn't have, a normal life. In this sadness, he took comfort in fast food and gained some weight. 
The closest he could ever get to living a normal life was through stealing others' identity. Through extensive research, he could impersonate others flawlessly. Through both personality and voice, none were the wiser to his deception. Even despite a noticeably heavier body, his impersonation was so good, it did not affect his ability to fool others. Regardless, he hated this way of life and the constant lies he was forced to tell. But if he wanted to exist, it was something he had to do. Such talent got him scouted as the super high school level imposter. The identity he copied most of the time was that of Byakuya Togami, an underclassman who's yet to enter the story for now. He copied him as his existence was the most complete the imposter had ever seen. After meeting Mitarai in the hallway, he chose to help him and take care of him. He then took up the persona of Mitarai so the real him could spend all of his time animating while the imposter could live life normally. His impersonation of Mitarai was so good, the rest of his class never noticed. The two became roommates and lived together. Gundam Tanaka, the Ultimate Breeder As a child, Gundam grew up under the care of his mother. The two seemed to have a pretty good relationship, however, she was a terrible cook. This was the basis for his belief that his body was brimming with poison. By that I mean Gundam suffers from Chunibyo, a part of someone's life where they believe themselves to have special powers that only they possess. They are immersed in the fictional world and every aspect of the real world is transformed to fit and mold their story. In Gundam's case, he was given evil powers from the underworld and will practice the dark arts and alchemy. It's never directly stated that this was the reason he never had any friends or even being the result of so. But Gundam, regardless, didn't like crowds or large groups going so far as to dislike even making physical contact with others. This led him to frequently skipping out on school sports days and never holding hands with other children. He considered the nurse of the school to be an ally of his as he was allowed to take refuge in the infirmary to avoid such social interactions. But what he lacked with humans, he made up for with animals. Gundam had a deep, empathetic connection with nature and its wildlife and thought that they were more trustworthy to begin with. He feels he understands their emotions to a level most don't understand. Due to this, he will actively avoid getting involved with any livestock or other animals fated to be slaughtered and eaten. Gundam's achievements shone through with his animal research, saving endangered species and hybridizing breeds. He can tame even the wildest of animals and claims to be able to understand their language once a deep enough bond is formed. Through his caring, he's built up a group which equally understand and respect the animal's rights. He shares his information and findings on his blog, which he equally claims to be a cover about his dark arts. Despite his dark and evil persona, he has a genuine care for his animal's well-being and a softer side which sometimes shines through every now and then. This is what makes him the super high school level animal breeding committee member. Ibuki Miyoda, the ultimate musician. As a teen, Ibuki attended an all-girls high school where she joined a light music club named Black Cherry. She wrote all of the songs that she herself performed and they reached the highest grossing singles in the country. Ibuki later left the group due to creative differences and proceeded to not follow the trends of music, instead playing whatever spoke to her heart, heavy metal. In fact, whenever someone listens to her music for the first time, it is not uncommon for them to get knocked unconscious due to its sheer pain. She can even play bass and drums on her guitar simultaneously. Such passion is what made her the super high school level light music club member. Mahiru Koizumi, the ultimate photographer. 
Mahiru's mother was a famous war photographer, one of which she was inspired by and began following in the footsteps of. Her interests in photography led her to winning multiple awards as she had an inherent skill at taking pictures of people. Her main interest was in smiling people. She somehow manages to capture the perfect essence of one's smile through her pictures. One had never seen such a bright and heartwarming smile until seeing one taken by Mahiru. Her mother was also the one who inspired her to do this as well, as she often showed her daughter pictures of those smiling. Her father, however, was a poor parent. With her mother out in war, responsibility often fell on Mahiru's own two shoulders. As a result, she's come to have high expectations of men and how they should act, often coming off as abrasive towards them. She doesn't like taking photos of boys, instead finding it easier and more fun to photograph girls. Her talent of showcasing the best side of someone through her photography is what got her scouted as the super high school level photographer. Teru Teru Hanamura, the ultimate cook. Hailing from the countryside, Teru Teru's family ran their own diner. It is here that he was taught how to cook thanks to his mother and he gained quite the skill at it. The Hanamura family faced financial difficulties, however, as his mother had an illness which made her incredibly frail. On top of all of this, they were frequently targeted by larger corporations trying to buy up their businesses, which they always refused. Teru Teru even went through various competitions to keep the family diner, including a cooking death match. He cares deeply for his mother and wants to keep their business afloat for her. Teru Teru does have a bit of a perverted side as well, as he's always making advances on the other female students. This attitude is further reflected in jealousy through his feelings towards his brother and sister, both of them respectively being the ultimate male and female escorts, which require an attractive appearance, that of which Teru Teru didn't exactly inherit. Either way, his passions and talent lie within cooking, where one day he hopes to open various restaurants. Despite her condition, his mother pushed him to go to Hope's Peak and take up his future as the super high school level cook. Nagito Kamueda, the ultimate lucky student. Ever since birth, Nagito's existence has been an omen. He was born on April 28th. According to old Japanese and Chinese beliefs, his birth month represents death and bad luck. However, his birthday represents a double amount of wealth and fortune. Due to this, his entire existence has been both a blessing and a curse. Nagito was born into a wealthy family. One of the earliest instances of his bad luck taking form was the sudden death of his beloved dog as he was hit by a truck and killed. But probably the most significant and bizarre manifestation of his luck were the death of his parents. When still in elementary school, Nagito and his family took a vacation to the Galapagos Archipelago. By the time it came to an end and they were on a plane headed home, their flight was hijacked by a robber. However, unexpectedly, the hijacker was struck by a meteor, killing him. A surprising amount of good luck. However, what would go on to become a trend, it was equally accompanied by bad as both of his parents were killed as well. He was then left as the sole inheritor of his large family fortune. Such balances of good and bad continued throughout most of his life. During middle school, Nagito found himself kidnapped by a serial killer. However, he was later released upon learning that no one was alive that would pay the ransom. Within the large garbage bag Nagito was taken in, he found a winning lottery ticket for $300 million. He inevitably recognized the pattern his life was entangled in. All horrible events are followed with something hopeful. Because of this, he never quite had genuine happiness. 
because he always knew that whenever something bad happened to him, something good was waiting just around the other corner, or vice versa. He accepted being alone for the rest of his life as he didn't want anyone else around him to suffer with what bad luck usually results in death. His attitude eventually became more of an obsession. He had grown so accustomed to his lifestyle that he lost all meaning and purpose to live. Someone with such bad luck as him could never be the true embodiment of hope, which is exactly why he began idolizing Hope's Peak Academy and the students in it. They are capable of harnessing absolute hope with their own free will. Nagito sought to become a stepping stone for said hope. Eventually, he won Hope's Peak's lucky student drawing and was accepted in. While he initially refused the offer having reduced his own self-worth, he was later convinced to accept and become a student. He didn't have any worry of his bad luck affecting the other students as their hope could negate and overcome whatever negative circumstance he created. But as the trend goes on, with all good luck, there is bad. Just before being drawn as the winner, Nagito was diagnosed with lymphoma and frontal temporal dementia with a life expectancy of six months to a year to live. Nevertheless, Nagito has formed quite the delusion of hope. For the worse the situation, the stronger the hope that will follow, even if the bad luck is of his own making. His luck, both good and bad, are what has given him the title of super high school level lucky student. Chiaki Nanami, the ultimate gamer. Not much is to be said about Chiaki's past. She is extremely interested in video games and is exceptionally skilled in all genres, having maxed out high scores in many games. Because of this, she usually keeps to herself and has difficulty making friends. She believes her talent is unable to make her friends to begin with. Despite being quite analytical, her focus on games often makes her oblivious to her surroundings, bumping into people and objects, and sometimes even forgetting to eat and breathe. While her backstory is quite simple compared to most, she is the ultimate high school level gamer. There were other students part of Class 77, however they were split off in Group A. These include the likes of Soshun Murasame, the ultimate student council president who took over after Munakata graduated, Yasuke Matsuda, the ultimate neurologist, Yuto Kamishiro, the ultimate secret agent, Santa Shikaba, the ultimate botanist, and Shinobu Togami, the ultimate secretary. Those are the only other named students a part of Class 77 that we're aware of. But don't worry just yet, since they're all going to play their role here soon enough as well. But probably the single most important figure in all of this isn't an ultimate student at all. No, instead it was someone with no talent whatsoever. A reserve course student named Hajime Hinata. Ever since he was a kid, he admired Hope Speak Academy, always dreaming of attending it himself. He always wanted to be a part of something bigger than himself, something that he could be proud of. But the problem was he possessed no talent whatsoever. He was completely talentless. His parents did enroll him into the reserve course, but even still he felt he was unworthy, not good enough to be at the academy in the first place. Due to his complete normalcy, he had been approached to join the Izuru Kamakura project by the school, however was hesitant at the beginning. But of course, it would be unwise to skip over an important figure Hajime met during this time, Chiaki Nanami. Their meeting was that of complete accident, as Chiaki simply bumped into him while being too hyper-focused on video games. But the two hit it off instantly. Hajime's own familiarity with video games immediately caught the attention of her, as she'd never interacted much with other people who'd played games. From here, the relationship between the two would further blossom, particularly in the way they each view the world and their role in it. 
Hajime frequently expressed his disdain for being talentless while Chiaki tried to tell him how talents aren't actually what's important. And in fact, someone who is talentless has the freedom to do whatever it is they please. The important thing someone can do regardless of talent is making memories with friends and people important to them. It was the exact reason she was continually spending time with Hajime so the two could share these memories. She tried to instill this outlook onto him, however, it was impossible. Hajime was not proud of the person he was. He wanted something he could show off to the others and he eventually succumbed to his desire to have talent. Under the tutelage of Chisa, Class 77 spent their school year growing closer together. The person who really helped them do so was Chiaki. Chisa had pushed her more to make friends with the others. It all started with Hajime and slowly but surely, Chiaki came out of her introverted shell. She became much more personable and the other students saw her as their class representative. Through festivals, class trips, and seasonal events, Class 77 all became friends thanks to the likes of Chiaki and Chisa. Admittedly, there's not many specific events that stand out through their school life, but probably the most important one was a murder that took place. It all revolves around Fuyuhiko's younger sister, Natsumi. As told during his backstory, she relinquished her position to be the leader of the Kuzuryu clan to her brother. However, that didn't stop her from wanting to be an ultimate herself. She felt as though she was being left behind, or was about to be, deserving to be part of the main course along with her brother. So instead, her family paid to get her a part of the Reserve Corps students, in the same class as Hajime. It's not hard to imagine that Natsumi's attitude was different to most. Being involved with the Yakuza, she had a very sharp tongue and twisted view of the world. She wanted to be a part of the main course so bad that she began bullying Mahiru in hopes to get her to drop out. But her twisted sense of humor implied she was even willing to kill her to get it. Mahiru's friend Sato was very protective, and after having confrontation after confrontation with Natsumi, the threat of murder was too far for her. The next day, Sato killed Natsumi. But it wasn't a clean execution, as she was almost caught by the likes of Mikan, Hiyoko, Ibuki, and Mahiru. Sato managed to create a scenario which made it seem like she heard a noise come from the locked room and is trying to investigate and it is here where all of the girls uncover Natsumi's dead body. Uncertain what to do, they all inevitably decide to not get involved. They leave the crime scene without touching anything, and Sato almost gets away with it. But Mahiru found some evidence which led her to believe that Sato had killed her. On the third day after the murder was discovered, Mahiru confronted Sato with a picture she took of evidence. Sato tried to explain how she did everything just to protect her, and it was an accident. Inevitably, Mahiru chose to believe her and got rid of the photo. But Fuyuhiko had found the evidence, and due to a combination of rumors already floating around about Sato's involvement with his sister, he became almost confident that she was behind all of this. Fuyuhiko then killed Sato with a baseball bat. Both of these killings were then covered up by Hope's Peak. A story was created which made it seem like a pervert was responsible for Natsumi's death and Sato simply died from the shock of losing a classmate. This was the event that pushed Hajime over the edge. He knew the school was covering it up and he was devastated after having just talked to Natsumi about her dreams of being an ultimate and having talent. So he took up the school's offer to be a test subject for the Izuru Kamakura project and the experiments began. To make a long story short, by all terms, it worked. Hope's Peak had managed to artificially create a man possessing all talents. 
Hajime's identity was changed to Izuru Kamakura, and he was marked as expelled to cover up his disappearance. By all stretches of the imagination, the Hajime he used to be was gone. To create this new individual, all of his memories, senses, emotions, thoughts, and hobbies were shoved down into the deepest parts of his mind, where they were likely never to resurface. The Hajime he was now was cold, emotionless, and perfect. He was then kept secret from the rest of the world, taught in secret about the school's ideology and about hope. But being so perfect came at a cost. The world became predictable, and he was so bored of it. For the next foreseeable few months, Izuru would be kept in his room on Hope Speaks grounds, but away from any other student interaction. Finally, there was one last significant event that occurred in the school year. The whole incident regarding Natsumi understandably affected the morale of the entire class. This was worrisome, particularly to Nagito, as everyone's practical exams were coming up. He felt as though it was an inappropriate time to give a test when they weren't at 100%. He expressed these worries to Chisa, however, she declined. This led Nagito to devise his own plan. Sort of. He did place bombs inside of the gym, making a bomb threat, but in tandem with this, his luck created a series of circumstances which, to make a long story short, resulted in the detonator getting pressed and the gym exploding, successfully postponing the exams. This resulted in the expulsion of three other students who were caught up in it, and as for Nagito, Jin believed his ultimate was too powerful to expel from the school permanently. So instead, he got off with a lesser punishment, he was expelled for one year. Kizakura was placed on probation, and Shisa was transferred to the Reserve Course Department. Her time there is never truly seen as a time skip occurs. It is likely that within the months she was there, it allowed her to move more freely and investigate Hope's Peak as she intended, as well as the disappearance of Hajime. But by the time the new school year came around, Chisa was not only welcomed back to the main course, but promoted to be the primary teacher so Kizakura could focus more on scouting. But undeniably, what would be the single most impactful decision that led to the beginning of the end was the scouting of next year's class, Class 78. Of course, not all of these students were responsible for what was to come in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it all came down to a single student in this class, Junko Enoshima. From a very early age in her life, Junko possessed an incredible talent, analytical prowess. She could analyze any situation at an inhuman pace. Her thoughts were incredibly detailed, and her memorization was just about flawless. She could predict what people were going to do before they did them. She could tell what made people happy and what made them sad. The world around her was predictable, and she became apathetic to how boring it was. This is what caused her to take an interest in despair. It was the one thing she thought was unpredictable, and it excited her. One of the earliest instances of her displaying such mischief was when she was a child. She and Yasuke Matsuda, the ultimate neurologist, a part of Class 77A in the present, were childhood friends. In elementary school, Junko had spent over a month building a sandcastle of the Sagrada Familia Church. Understandably, it drew the attention of those all around the neighborhood. But one day, the sandcastle was found destroyed. Junko cried the entire day, which spurred Yasuke to search for the perpetrator responsible for the heinous act. But he found nothing. Despite his best efforts, Yasuke was incapable of discovering any leads to who did it. 
That was until Junko whispered into his ear that she did it. Understandably confused, Junko asked that he keep it a secret and says that it was just an accident. However, this was just another lie. Junko's true motive was much more despair-inducing. Yasuke's mother suffered from a brain disease which caused her to forget her own son. This led to neglect and abuse. Junko destroyed her sandcastle to draw Yasuke out of his house and away from his mother. Without care, her disease worsened and the symptoms with it. He was further neglected, abused, and it made him ambivalent, distant, and incredibly depressed. His mother eventually died, and Yasuke blamed the doctors for the poor treatment which is what would spur him on to become the ultimate neurologist. However, at that moment in time, he had no one, except for Junko. He could rely on her, and she was more than happy to do the same for him, promising to always be together. A relationship blossomed between the two, while Junko refers to them as lovers, an emotionally withdrawn Yasuke never saw it the same. He describes his relationship to Junko not one of family, lover, or even friend, but someone just as important as any of them. Yasuke would of course go on to follow his neurology path and enroll into Hope's Peak. As for Junko, she had another relationship to someone I've yet to bring up, her twin sister, Mukuro Ikusaba. Similarly to Junko, she too possessed talent at a young age, only her interest was in the military. In elementary school, she won a survival game tournament and began writing for military magazines. However, just before middle school, she disappeared. During a family vacation to Europe, Mukuro had vanished, presumed to have been kidnapped. The truth, however, was she joined an elite mercenary group known as Fenrir. They're based out of the Middle East and always engage in direct combat. The soldiers are fierce and unrelenting. Despite her age and size, she was trained in their ways and became highly proficient in both firearms and hand-to-hand -hand combat. She fought with Fenrir on many missions and came out from each of them unscathed. As for Junko, she used her analytical prowess to gain a career as a model. She predicted the hottest trends and gained popularity amongst the Japanese population. Ironically, it was because people thought she felt genuine and real. Having grown up, her desire to spread despair only grew. No longer did she want to inflict it individually, she wished for all mankind to feel it. And so she began planning on how to paint the world with despair. She couldn't do this alone, and so she had her sister help her out. Mukuro left Fenrir, and together she and Junko became the Despair Sisters, otherwise known as the Ultimate Despair. On a side note, to make sure she still had her edge, Junko had Mukuro slaughter an entire school just to prove she was capable. There were only two survivors. Both of them were enrolled into Hope's Peak as students. Mukuro being the ultimate soldier, and Junko the ultimate fashionista, as she hid her true talent behind its facade. However, Junko's enrollment is particularly unique. Unlike her classmates, Junko was not scouted by the school in the traditional sense. Neither was she recommended by the headmaster. Jin Norkizakura had any hand in her scouting. No, Junko was directly sought out by the steering committee themselves. They were the ones responsible for admitting her into the 78th class as they felt her talent was guaranteed. She showed so much promise as a fashionista that by enrolling her, it would almost guarantee to make the school look better upon her graduation. However, as the steering committee does after her enrollment, any and all responsibility with regard to her development was then placed on the headmaster. 
It's uncertain if Mukuro was admitted into the school under similar terms or if she was separately scouted through traditional methods. Either way, both Junko and Mukuro, the Despair sisters, were now part of Hope's Peak Class 78. For the most part, everyone here would have a reserved role in the events to come, so I'll leave introductions for this group until they become more central players. Just be aware that these students are running around, becoming friends, building bonds, and having life experiences that they should never forget. Having now infiltrated the beacon of hope around the world, it didn't take her long to get to work. Her analytical prowess quickly pieced together Hope's Peak's recent additions. The reserve course, the money it was bringing in, where was it all going, and the people who held knowledge in the school. Not the headmaster, but the steering committee. Junko targeted them very quickly and uncovered the Izuru Kamakura project, and her imagination yet again got to work. What better way to show that despair triumphs above all than turning who is meant to be the symbol of hope into the exact opposite? She kidnapped one of the school's trustees where she tortured and subsequently killed him. She extracted the information of where Izuru was being kept, and with the talent of Mukuro, the security station there were easily dealt with. Thanks to the eyeball Junko borrowed from the trustee member, she finally had her fateful meeting with Izuru. While her initial motivation appears to be a simple attempt at murder to plunge the world into despair, Izuru questions why someone as smart as her would make such a feeble attempt at trying to kill him which was doomed to fail. Junko didn't really want to murder him, but simply wanted to make sure that all of the rumors were true. Since they were, she knew that he was exactly the same as her. Such talent, such intellect, has only made the world a boring place. She speaks of how unpredictable and interesting Despair is, and asks that he join her side so she can show him. Before they get an opportunity, alarms go off, to which Izuru knocks Junko unconscious, and she is brought to the nurse's office. Mukuro was capable of making an excuse which explained her injuries and avoided any unwanted suspicion. But it seems Junko's sales pitch worked as Izuru told Mukuro that he would be waiting for them and he wanted to see if Despair really was as interesting as she was making it out to be. However, on her way out of the hospital, she had what she described as a fateful encounter with Mitarai. Junko is one of the various characters who possesses the gut instinct. Some detect hope, others despair, and for some, just overall situations. For whatever reason, Junko felt like they were destined to work together. She questioned what it was he did, and he sheepishly responded that he's the ultimate animator. She does make fun of him for this initially, which puts him on the defensive, and he instead chooses to prove it to her. He shows her one of his animations, which moves her to tears. Intrigued as to how he can do something so amazing, he divulges his techniques to her, and the brainwashing-esque manipulation that goes along with it. While he believed this was fine as he was using it for positive things, Junko, on the other hand, just got a new addition to her plan. She set up Mitarai in the office of the trustee she killed and made sure he wasn't allowed to leave. Mikan Sumuki had also been kidnapped at this point as she became worried of Mitarai's well-being and stopped by his apartment where she ran into Mukuro. With the wheels beginning to move, by this point Junko had other plans. You see, while at the core of everything she wished to spread despair around the world, the question was also how she was going to go about doing this. In what method showcases just how hopeless the world really is. If by Junko's own hand the world succumbed, then she would be seen as the person who did it. No, she needed a way to turn hope on hope. And that's where she got the idea for a killing game. 
forcing a bunch of Hope's Peak students to kill each other would show that despite the fact that they're supposed to go on and inspire the world, they'll plunge it themselves. By using blackmail and secrets of these students, their own selfishness and insecurities will get the better of them. Also, it was just very entertaining as a concept to her. But like all good plans, everything starts with a prototype. And that's exactly what she was off to test. The experiment was the school's student council. She had spent her time gathering information on them to incentivize the killings. Cameras were set up so she could watch and record the whole thing, and once all the pieces were in place, she went off and got Izuru to show him just how interesting despair can be. Junko laid out everything before them and told them to start killing. While initial confusion and refusal ensued, it didn't take long before the black male pushed one of them to start attacking. Chaos erupted. Madness consumed everyone. Whether to keep the blackmail from getting out, or for what they would tell themselves as self-defense, one by one, they each betrayed each other and killed. In the end, one student came out on top. However, due to his attempt at killing Izuru, who had been watching everything unfold, he suffered an unlucky death. In an uncharacteristic turn of events, Izuru was shocked when a bullet the student council member had fired managed to graze his cheek. Despite all expectations, despite how he likely knew how everything was going to turn out, he didn't see that coming. The despair he just witnessed was unpredictable. This event would go down in infamy known as the tragedy of Hope's Peak Academy. One student did survive, Soshun Murasame, the student council president. He suffered a head injury and fell into a comatose-like unresponsive state. What appeared to be a showcasing of despair to Izuru on the part of Junko, she cleverly had an ulterior motive as well, as luring Izuru there was part of her trap. She wanted to have him at the scene of the crime to pin the whole thing on him, which is exactly what she did. Having recorded the whole thing, Junko edited the footage to make it out as though Izuru was the mastermind behind the whole incident and pinned the blame on him. She also used a bit of Mitarai's brainwashing technique and put it in the video as well. The footage was sent to every Reserve Corps student along with details about how their money was being spent, the illegal experiments, and the creation of Izuru. And this infuriated them. Their money was going to the creation of a murderer. But also unbeknownst to them, they had also just been brainwashed. They gained an increased passion for despair. Whatever it was Junko wanted them to do, they would. But for now, she held off and let the natural course of nature play out. The Reserve Corps students began to protest in mass numbers. As for Hope's Peak, Junko was actually the one to report the incident to the school. And as per usual, the response was to bury it. If knowledge of what happened got out, Hope's Peak would be closed entirely. A new narrative was formed. They had said the student council had suddenly been called abroad to study, and as for the large gathering of Reserve Corps students, they had dubbed that the parade. The public had no idea that they were protesting and revolting and wouldn't with a name like that. For now, the protests remained largely civil. As for Izuru, despite being the face of the tragedy, the steering committee deemed him too valuable to face any sort of consequence. Instead, he was allowed to get off scot-free. The building the incident took place in was closed off, barred from anyone stepping foot inside. This would be where Izuru was kept for the time being. The tragedy of Hope's Peak was hidden to all but one student, Yasuke Matsuda. 
Being the ultimate neurologist, the higher-ups at the school needed his skills to extract information from people who may have been involved. One of the people he was asked to look into was Junko. Despite pinning the blame on Izuru, suspicion did fall on her for potentially having involvement in the tragedy itself. And so the steering committee asked that he interrogate her about the incident. What they didn't know was the history the two shared. Matsudo would never betray Junko, not because he was brainwashed like the others, but because he genuinely cared for her. He cared for her so much that in reality, it was already his true despair. Instead, now that her childhood friend had grown up and learned so much about the brain and how to tamper with it, she wanted him to erase any memories she had involving the incident. This would not only clear suspicion of her, but it was also yet another test for a future killing game she was planning. Matsuda complied with this, however, knowing full well the insanity of her, he thought this could be an opportunity to save her. He didn't just get rid of a single moment in time, he wiped her memories entirely. He had gotten rid of the personality of Junko Enoshima all in an effort to protect her. A new persona was born. Junko's new identity was Ryoko Otanashi, the ultimate analytical prowess. She suffers from short-term memory loss and can hardly recall events from earlier in the day. This led her to document her life in a journal. She had frequent schedules with Yasuke to keep an eye on her condition. In other words, he was making sure she wasn't remembering anything and remained in this state. While Junko's memories were gone, her heart still held true. Some things just couldn't be erased, like her love for Yasuke and her natural sense of detecting hope and despair. Nevertheless, this was Junko's new life, but it was something she fully anticipated. She knew Matsuda would attempt something along these lines, so she had directed Mukuro to disguise herself and pretend to be Junko in her stead. She was to target and kill the head figures of the steering committee and involve Ryoko in them. An innocent normal girl getting dragged into a series of murders would surely drive her to despair. Mukuro didn't understand why, but she followed orders. One month after the tragedy of Hope's Peak is when these events occurred. These weren't the only players in this story, however. While the steering committee wanted to get to the bottom of the tragedy, so did a few others. First were the Madurai brothers. They were the ultimate bodyguard, eight identical siblings with superhuman synchronization and communication. They gave off the illusion that they were a single person, immortal, capable of being multiple places at once as few knew the secret of the brothers. They were the bodyguards of the student council. They feel shame and humiliation for not having been included in the killing game and being unable to utilize their skill to protect them all. They consider themselves the sole survivors of the student council. So for closure, the Madurai brothers are searching for the mastermind responsible for the incident. Also separately requested was Kyoko Kirigiri, Jin's daughter who was taken long ago. She was actually a student of Class 78, scouted by Hope's Peak as the ultimate detective. The relationship between the two was understandably awkward. It wasn't that of father and daughter, as she had been raised to detest him for his abandonment of family and legacy. During her time in Hope's Peak, they were just related by blood, nothing more. She had done several jobs for her father and the steering committee, having become acquainted with them since arriving. Only this time around, she was asked to investigate Izuru Kamakura and the tragedy of Hope's Peak. Also investigating this mystery was Yuto Kamashiro, the ultimate spy. 
He's a boy with no distinct characteristics about him whatsoever, so much so that he has almost no presence to begin with. People hardly recognize that he's there and he seems to naturally blend in. He honed such talents to eavesdrop and spy on people, earning him his title. Ironically, he was spurred on to start investigating by Ryoko, obviously unaware of her actual involvement and identity. And from here, a series of events take place. Mukuro would follow Junko's plan and target the steering committee, killing them and involving Ryoko in its circumstance. The first member was hanged. Mukuro lures Ryoko out, claiming she stole her memories, her journal where she documents her life, which is where she first sees the body. But after running away in fear, the body disappears, even to Mukuro's confusion. What had happened was Matsuda's involvement. His willingness to protect Junko at all costs pushes him even so far as to hide and dispose of dead bodies that might draw unwanted attention to her. He had secretly been following her, making sure that she avoids such death, and this wouldn't be the last time he did this. They do have a small run-in with some of the Madurai brothers as Junko was one of their suspects. Being nothing but a nuisance, Mukuro fights them believing it to be just one person, while one of the other brothers pursues Ryoko. However, thanks to her analytical prowess, she outsmarts and evades him, inevitably trapping him under some collapsed shelves. As for the brother fighting Mukuro, she snaps his neck. Presumably, she also went off and killed the other trapped brother Ryoko faced. As for Yasuke, his neurology skills weren't just needed to question Junko, they were also needed to question the only surviving member of the tragedy, Soshun Murasame. It is learnt that he had since recovered from his comatose-like state, however has been acting to still suffer from it. The truth was what he went through was traumatizing. He was apathetic, unstable, and very tired. The person he once was is dead. And that's only more prevalent as once Matsuda questioned him about Junko, he went berserk. From a body that hardly showed any signs of moving to a frantic and mad psychopath, he began screaming about Junko and killing her. The Soshun who used to exist was no more. To protect Junko from the information he knew, Matsuda strangled him right then and there. His death was covered up by the school as a suicide. Kyoko's investigation is brought to a halt as after threatening to release shady deals she had uncovered about the school to the committee members, she is able to schedule a meeting to discuss the school tragedy. However, on their designated meeting time, the man runs a few minutes late. Upon arrival, before the two can discuss anything, a desk falls from the sky and crushes the man. Several other desks follow suit, burying and mutilating him. Mukuro stood atop the school and targeted Kyoko as well. Though she was incapable of discerning who it was and avoided the falling desks, she fails to find the culprit, and yet again, the body goes missing. She reports her findings to her father and tells him to warn the other steering committee members, for which all he asks is that she be careful on the investigation. Back with Ryoko, she would have a run-in with one of her fellow classmates, Makoto Naegi. While their interaction would be brief and largely uneventful, yet another Madurai brother appears, for Ryoko has become their prime suspect. Makoto is taken hostage and threatened to be killed, however Mukuro, as herself this time, saves him. Once everyone leaves the scene, Mukuro proceeds to kill this Madurai brother. Later on, dressed yet again as Junko, she kidnaps Ryoko so she can experience despair. She's taken underground, where she bears witness to a whole secret society who has devoted themselves to the Student Council Despair video. They watch it over and over again, upwards of over 5,000 times they've seen it. 
A frightened Ryoko flees through the concrete corridors only to make her way into another room housing two old men, both of them trapped in prison cells, eyes horrifically sewn shut, and one of them already dead. These were the last two remaining members of the steering committee. They had been kidnapped and tortured for information regarding Izuru Kamakura. The society wished to use his power to overthrow the school. Recognizing Ryoko wasn't with them, he pleaded to exchange information for his life. He told her where Izuru was, the old school building which had been closed off after the tragedy. However, a despair inflicted Ryoko has slowly begun regaining her true personality as Junko. She collapsed on the floor and the society members came in and killed the final steering committee member. Ryoko was carried back to Matsuda's lab where Kyoko's investigation had taken her. Kyoko uncovers the hidden compartment underneath the bed where evidence regarding killings had been hidden. She pieces together that Yasuke may not have actually killed anyone other than Soshun, but he's been covering them up. After an introduction with each other and disbelief of circumstance on the part of Ryoko, Yet again, the Madurai brothers appear questioning the disappearance of their other three. This time, Ryoko and Kyoko become the target of their attacks. Four brothers chase after Ryoko while a single one chases Kyoko. Yet again, Mukuro is forced to step in and save them all. While she warns them to stop their pursuit of Ryoko, not wanting any more victims, they refuse, stating that they must avenge the student council. All four brothers are then killed by Mukuro. She once again sends Ryoko on her path of despair, telling her that Matsuda is in the old school building, and she heads off. Mukuro would return back into the school and save Kyoko from the last Madurai brother and kill him as well. The school covered up their death, claiming they got expelled. Having run off to find Matsuda, Ryoko has a run-in with Yuto inside the old building. While I haven't been recapping his story as much as the others, he's been playing a very passive role in his discoveries. Ryoko had been feeding him information as she experienced them. This led him to take suspicion onto Junko as she was the one who found the student council and also the person who sent out the video to all of the reserve course students. This was not public knowledge, but thanks to a friend he made in the 78th class, he backtracked the file and found Junko's name. Yuto never mentioned his source by name to protect them from his mission. Upon further investigation, he discovered that she was questioned thoroughly by Yasuke Matsuda. Meaning if she was involved, so was he in the cover-up. Yuto hypothesizes she may very well be the mastermind behind everything. This, including what he was told about Izuru, led him to the old school building where Ryoko now was. Together, they traverse the halls and descend the elevator, where Izuru is meant to be. Yuto explains his obsession and dedication to his talent because it's the only thing he has. Despite being terrified, it's exciting and he must push on. By the time they reach their destination, Yuto fully spells out what he thinks went on. The framing of Izuru Kamakura, Junko Enoshima being the mastermind, and Yasuke Matsuda being an accomplice. But when Ryoko turned around, Yuto's neck had been snapped. It was not Izuru they had found, but Yasuke. He overheard Yuto's discovery of everything, and yet again to protect Junko, he killed him. This was the final straw for Yasuke. He realized he cared too much for Junko and that no matter what, she would always be capable of inflicting despair onto anyone she wanted. So to break free of his own despair, he tried to end it all. He wrapped his hands around Ryoko's neck and tried to strangle her. Feeling the despair of the one person she loved attempt to kill her, it snapped her back to the reality of who she really was. 
she finally remembered that she was Junko Enoshima. She pulled out a knife and stabbed Yasuke. In the end, it was her goal to not only frame Izuru, but kill her beloved. It was because she loved him that she killed him, so she could feel the despair of losing someone so close to her. And with that, her plan was a success. The steering committee was dead, suspicion was no longer on her, and she got to feel despair. With that, she returned to her school life as if nothing ever happened. As for Kyoko, her investigation would continue as she tried to uncover the being known as Ultimate Despair. The parade intensifies, the unrest becomes more worrisome, and the reserve course students are becoming more and more aggressive. The stage is finally starting to be set for Junko's big coup de grace. But probably one of the most important figures Junko allied during her time at Hope's Peak was an elementary school girl named Monica Toa. She was part of Hope's Peak's elementary school division as Little Ultimate Homeroom, but despite her age, she held great power and resources. She was born into the Toa family. They are the leading technology enterprise in the world. But what drew Junko to her was the despair she felt to her life. Monica was born an unwanted child to the mistress of the Toa group president. Her mother neglected her and completely abandoned her child. While her father wanted to do the same, he instead took her in. But even still, she was despised by her fellow family members. Regardless of all of these things, she was a genius. Despite her age, she became a chief executive in the Toa Group's robotic branch. She had also at some point begun to pretend to be paraplegic as it was the only form of sympathy she ever started getting. At Hope's Peak, she was part of the Troublemaker class alongside other fellow elementary school students, Daimon, Jotaro, Kotoko, and Nagisa, each of them also from a troubled past. She was capable of convincing everyone to commit suicide as a prank, with no intention of going through with it herself. But it was on that roof that Junko saved them. She was the first person to ever show them kindness and love. Monica was fully aware of Junko's manipulation, however, didn't care. Junko had her mass produce the Monokuma mascot for her. Using all the cutting-edge technology, Monica deceived her father, convincing him that they would be domestic helpers and emergency workers. Her genius proved to her benefit as they simply just let her have her project. And with that, Junko had an endless supply of top-of-the-line Monokuma robots. Back on track with the story of Mitarai in Class 77, Mikon was subjected to Junko's brainwashing video as well. She became unwaveringly subservient to any and all requests and actions made by her. She spoke of her class and how much she loved them, how unified they had become thanks to the efforts of Chisa and Chiaki. They were so full of hope, and that's exactly why Junko targeted them. Fortunately, she didn't have to do much, as for the class had become worried over the disappearance of Mikon, and they were starting to search for her. Also having returned from his one-year suspension was Nagito. He went on yet another unlucky journey, having been the sole survivor of a plane crash on a desert island paradise. He returned to Hope's Peak amongst the riots as they intensified, and he aided his class in their search for Mikon. Yet again, his luck proved invaluable. For whatever reason, he stopped Peko before their search, having a bad feeling asking her to keep a lookout while he and Chiaki stumbled upon Junko's base through pure luck. 
It was here that he found Junko. As for Mukuro, she was intercepted by Peko and locked in combat. Similarly to Junko, Nagito has the natural ability to sense hope and despair, and he knew that Junko was oozing with the essence of absolute despair. He pulled out a gun he picked up on his journey and intended to kill her so hope could thrive, but quickly turns his attention to Izuru, who's just shown up. Nagito's luck was the strongest of anyone who'd ever had it. It was unmatched and unequaled, except by Izuru. His is the only luck to ever outweigh Nagito's own, resulting in a jam clipped and being knocked out. Fortunately and unfortunately, Chisa shows up to save them, but after their escape, it doesn't take long for everything to turn for the worse. Peko loses her battle with Mukuro. Chisa is captured and subjected to the despair video, but after resisting its effects, they resort to more arcane methods. Mukuro lobotomizes Chisa, ensuring her loyalty to despair. As for her class, this stage has already been set. Mikan was to separate Chiaki and lure everyone else to the special trial ground. It wasn't hard considering that they had all cared greatly for their teacher, so any leads to where they may be so they can help, they took. The plan went perfectly, and they were all forced to watch the girl who brought them all together and inspired hope in them all, mercilessly be forced to navigate through a deadly maze that was trying to kill her. This was yet again another prototype for an execution premise Junko was testing. But there was nothing her class could do. The brainwashing was in the live footage, keeping their eyes glued to the screen, incapable of moving. While Chiaki valiantly defied Junko's attempts at despair, adamant that she was going to make it through, there is never a light at the end of Junko's tunnel. Just the illusion of one. Just as Chiaki thinks that she's beaten her game, giving her hope, spears impale her body, killing her. Her entire class falls into despair, having witnessed the one person who brought them together, made them friends, and formed lasting memories with, die, completing Junko's plan. As for Izuru, he approaches Chiaki, who's just barely managed to cling on to life. She expresses her desire to help everyone and be by their side, and she's saddened that she can't make any more memories with them. She doesn't want to die, and she's saddened that she's failed them, as well as Hajime, before she officially dies. Despite having no memories as Hajime, Izuru cries over her death. For only the second time in his existence, he was shocked. Why was he crying? He didn't have the answer. Did Chiaki's words reach him somehow? This was a breakthrough for him. It wasn't just despair that managed to be unpredictable like Junko had said, but now Chiaki's hope as well. So he decides to take an interest. Which one will surprise him more? Junko's despair on the world or the hope that will fight back against it? He chooses to follow the students of Class 77, erasing his own memories to see just if Chiaki's hope for them will come true. As for Junko, there was only one more obstacle in her way, Munakata and Juzo. She had already dealt with Chisa, but after Juzo investigated her file, he connected her to the killings of several guards and trustees of the school, and determined that she had to have been involved personally in the tragedy of Hope's Peak. He went to apprehend her, however, is interrupted by a horde of Reserve Corps students under her control. Despite being the ultimate boxer, he couldn't take them all. Instead, Junko does what she does best and blackmails him. She had been following his actions and knew that he had romantic feelings for his boss, Kiyosuke Munakata, and told him to say that she's not suspicious and there's nothing to worry about from her or else she'll expose him. 
Juzo couldn't help but take the offer. He returned to Kiyosuke and said that Junko was clear. Immediately followed was Chisa, who despair inflicted cleared Junko as well. And with that, no one suspected her of anything. Chisa would go on to hold a graduation for her class, staging their deaths. With despair spreading rampantly, the school was being torn apart at the seams, and as the cherry on top, Junko then had all of the Reserve Corps students commit mass suicide. They jumped from the roofs, fell from the windows, and painted the pavement with their blood. While they all thought like her, they were nowhere near what she was capable of, so they were useless to her. Hope's Peak was on the precipice of total annihilation, but to Jin, it was too much of a symbol to let fall. He proposed a countermeasure to ensure Hope survived this event. He wanted to barricade him and the newest students inside the school until the despair either ceased or calmed down. He suggested that Koichi and Kazuo make their exit and not accompany him on his responsibility. It was agreed upon, and that's exactly what they did. The students of Class 78 all consented to spend their foreseeable futures inside the academy, and so they all got to work. They reinforced the windows and made it nigh impossible for the despair to get in and also to get out. They took up refuge in the old abandoned school building that was shut down after the student council tragedy, but little did they know, the despair was already amongst them. And they were the candidates Junko had been testing all of her experiments up till now for her next killing game. Things didn't kick off in the school immediately. No, as a matter of fact, it would be a whole year before Junko made her next move. Pieces still needed to be gathered and find their natural place in the world. In the meantime, while Class 77 stayed barricade, the world fell exactly into Junko's hands and succumbed to despair. The rise of the ultimate despair plagued the world and the people in it. Class 77 were among some of the biggest contributors to helping it. Fuyuhiko and Peko used their Yakuza influence to conquer the National Diet Building. Sonya destroyed her very own country. Soda built large mechanical robots to wreak havoc. Gundam controlled animals as an army. Ibuki and Hyoko promoted despair through their dancing and music. Each and every one of them had their hand in spreading despair. Before long, it became a normal part of society, and the everyday person began to cause anarchy. The world, effectively, came to an end. This event was known as the biggest, most awful, most tragic event in human history, otherwise dubbed the Tragedy. To fight back against this abnormal force, Tengen and Munakata decided to form the Future Foundation. Using the offshore facility Munakata had been working on, this organization would actively fight back against the despair in hopes to restore the world back to its once former glory. Many familiar faces joined the ranks, like Chisa, Juzo, Mitarai, and Kizakura. Many other former Hope's Peak alumni were also scouted and brought in to help manage separate divisions. Each division focused on an aspect of the world which needed rebuilding. The first division, led by Tengen, was in charge of the overall direction and leadership of the Future Foundation. The second division, led by Munakata, was in charge of day-to-day -day operations, construction, military, peacekeeping, and expansion of the organization. Division 3, led by Kizakura, was human resources. Things like scouting new members fell perfectly into the hands of what he was once familiar with. Division 4 was led by Seiko Kimura, the ultimate pharmacist. She was in charge of research and development of medical techniques. Division 5, led by Chisa, was intelligence inquiry and counter-espionage. Division 6, led by Juzo, was policing, riot suppression, and special crime scene investigation. 
Division 7, led by Miyaya Gekogahara, the ultimate therapist, was in charge of information system security and administration along with research and developing a way to cure despair. Division 8, led by Ruruka Ando, the ultimate confectioner, was long-term stable food procurement. Division 9, led by Sanosuke Izayoi, the ultimate blacksmith, was research and development of weapons and equipment. Division 10, led by Ryota Mitarai, was in charge of reviving education and culture. Division 11 was led by Daisaku Bandai, the ultimate farmer. He was in charge of restoring agriculture in disaster areas. Division 12, led by the great Gozu, the ultimate wrestler, assisted in restoring infrastructure like transportation, communication, and public facilities and Division 13 was in charge of frontline food and resource distribution. Together, they all worked to end the world brought upon by the despair. Having spent a whole year inside of the school, it was officially time for Junko to commence her plan. The one person who stood in her way from the get-go was Jin Kirigiri, so he had to go. She used her Monokuma doll to execute him in Blastoff. All that was left was her and her fellow classmates. Speaking of which, it seems like the right time to introduce them. Kiyotaka Ishimaru, the ultimate moral compass. His family comes from a long line of authority. His father Takaki being a police officer and his grandfather Toranosuke was once the prime minister of Japan. But you see, Taka was forced to learn a harsh lesson from him at an early age. Taka believed his grandfather had gained his position through his own natural talent as opposed to hard work. After being prime minister for only a few months, Toranosuke got caught up in a scandal which cost him everything. The public's opinion changed from praise to criticism and he was forced to step down. His business collapsed and the Ishimaru name had been tainted. The family was left with huge amounts of debt to pay off, something that even in modern day still affects the family. His grandfather would spend his final years in shamed silence. Taka came to hate the label of genius, and he saw what happened to his grandfather as a valuable lesson for himself. He swore to restore honor to the Ishimaru family name by gaining his own success through hard work and dedication rather than natural talent. He devoted himself to always doing the right thing, sticking true to the values of what would one day make him a respectable leader. He got good grades in school and spent all of his time studying, but this came with a trade-off as he never watched TV, played video games, had a hobby, and as for a social life, it was non-existent. All of this for his beliefs of what is right and wrong. Such dedication to the enforcement of the rules has given him a very polite personality even when he gets upset but one that has rightfully earned him the title of Super High School Level Public Morals Committee Member. Mondo Awada, the Ultimate Biker Gang Leader Mondo grew up with his older brother Daya, and the two were always a bit of rebels. Daya had started his own biker gang known as the Crazy Diamonds. He was an incredibly influential figure in Mondo's life, and even instilled certain morals in him such as never hitting a woman. Due to their bond, it didn't take long before Mondo was invited into the biker gang as well. But he simply could not just take up a high-ranking position, he had to earn it. In the early days, he was forced to ride in the back of the group, so when they were pursued by the police, Mondo was often the one caught and put in trouble. Despite this, he was determined and patient and slowly rised up the ranks. Together, he and his brother built a name for the Crazy Diamonds, with the two even being referred to as the Diamond Brothers. They became the fiercest and largest biker gang Japan had ever seen. 
Eventually, Daya decided it was his time to step down and retire, passing on the responsibilities to his little brother. A nice sentiment, however, the other members of the gang didn't believe that Mondo was worthy and was getting the title through nepotism. This ate at his self-esteem, and he wanted to prove to everyone that he was capable of stepping outside of his brother's shadow. At Daya's retirement party, Mondo challenged him to a race, which he agreed. However, during this race, Mondo got caught up in the heat of the moment and became reckless. He went head-on into traffic, but before he was hit, Daya saved him by pushing him out of the way. Daya was killed in the collision, wishing that Mondo take leadership of the Crazy Diamonds and not blame himself. Mondo kept the truth of the incident hidden. Instead, his reputation was that he killed his brother to prove that he was worthy to be the leader of the fiercest biker gang in Japan. This is exactly what got him scouted by Hope's Peak. He accepted it as a way to escape what became his fear of losing the gang. Mondo felt like he had to find other aspirations after he eventually graduates from both high school and the gang, just like Daya had intended as well, while also setting an example for the others. In his stead, he placed in charge Takemichi Yukimaru, he was the head of the elite guard of the gang and Mondo's closest and most trusted friend. Mondo's honor and sense of loyalty to his gang is what has earned him the title of super high school level gang leader. Sayaka Maizono, the ultimate pop sensation. Growing up, she was raised under the care of only her father as her mother had passed away. Due to his job, he didn't have much time to spend with his daughter, which often left her home alone. To keep from the feelings of sadness and loneliness, she was comforted by the idol live shows that were on TV. The idol's charismatic personalities, happy smiles, and overall positive presence became Sayaka's own source of strength, and she became determined to be just like them one day so she too could provide the support for those who need it just like her. Of course, this dream did become a reality. She developed all of the social etiquette needed to present herself, resulting in a very cheerful, sweet, and supporting demeanor. Of course, in combination with the performance talents such as singing and dancing. Being an idol, of course, comes with many different jobs, such as having done various photo shoots for idol photo books. She's accrued over 100 million fans who all call themselves Sayakers. She definitely is living the life of popularity and fame but unfortunately, her success is rooted in darkness. While it's never exactly specified, she acknowledges for her to have gotten so far, it required her to do many bad things and make sacrifices along the way. Nothing is ever detailed, but it's not too hard to tell that they're things she'd soon rather forget. She cares greatly for her idol group, and they are the most important thing to her. Her fame caused her to garner a lot of attention even when she was in middle school. In fact, Makoto Naegi, another student of Class 78, and her went to the same middle school. However, due to being in different classes, didn't interact much. Makoto, of course, knew of her, but largely avoided interacting due to believing they were in different social standards. But he did accidentally grab her attention when a crane got stuck in the school's swimming pool. Makoto was the one who rescued it and nursed it back to health. This was an action that touched Sayaka's heart, and she wished to get to know him better after it. However, their time was cut short, as they both graduated middle school and went off to different high schools. But as the story goes, Sayaka's fame and fans got her scouted to enter Hope's Peak Academy as the super high school level idol. Yasuhiro Hagakure, the ultimate clairvoyant. Hiro always seems to have had an interest in the supernatural to a certain extent. 
He doesn't like ghosts or occult-related topics. Fortune-telling is his main talent, and he can predict the future with a 30% accuracy rate. While the statistics may seem very low, his predictions, when correct, are incredibly accurate to a scary degree. He's pretty much always lived alone with his mother, Hiroko. Not much is known about his father. He's brought up having burnt down their house due to falling asleep with a burning cigarette, and Hiroko says that there were some severe problems between the two of them which she let go on for far too long, which was the cause for their split. Ever since, Hiro and his mom have been living together. To make his living, Hiro used his fortune-telling for quite a few clients. Despite his talent to actually predict the future, he did scam many customers. One such client was the daughter of a mafia leader, which put him on the wrong side of their sights. He was forced to pay off a large debt to make up for all the money he was scamming out of her, a debt that even in modern day, he hasn't paid off. He's not very wise with his money regardless, spending them on such items like a 100 million yen crystal ball that was owned by Napoleon Bonaparte and George Washington. He was also held back several times in school as well. Despite being a very laid-back and cheery person, he doesn't quite have any friends due to his odd personality and the fact that he'll usually act very selfishly. Regardless, his mother still loves him despite such flaws, and he, her. It doesn't matter how many people he did scam with his fake fortune-telling, because the real fortune-telling got him scouted by Hope's Peak as the super high school-level fortune-teller. Hifumi Yamada, the ultimate fanfic creator. Hifumi's childhood was very lonely, saying he was without a single friend. And he had only one real interest, drawing. For whatever reason, he had difficulty accepting the goodwill of others, particularly from women, believing their kindness was never genuine. In fact, he began to yell at them whenever they did try to talk to him and took enjoyment from doing so. But probably the most defining point in his life was when he discovered the anime Demon Angel Pretty Pudgy Princess. Initially, he thought it was just another magical girl anime, but after being visited by Princess Piggles in her dream, he fell in love. He began purchasing all of her merchandise and drew artwork of only her as he knew of no other way to express his love. He created his own personal website and even convinced his school to let him create a fanfic club. He went on to sell over 10,000 copies of his fan comics during his school's festival. While the other students thought his work was shameful and would taint the festival as a whole, Hifumi sought to prove them wrong. Of course, due to the nature of Demon Angel being an anime, Hifumi frequented conventions, where he sold his artwork at booths. He does also have an older sister named Fujiko, who is very similar to him in many ways. She too is a skilled artist, however, she takes much more of an interest in drawing naked boys. Hifumi's dedication to Princess Piggles and creating his own works of fan manga and artwork, doing everything himself from concept, inking, and printing, has rightfully earned him the title of Super High School Level Dojin Author. Leon Kuwata, the ultimate baseball star. Leon's talent at baseball came not through hard work and or even passion for the sport, but instead was just a coincidence. He was incredibly naturally gifted at the sport, so much so that the school begged him to play so that they could get an easy championship. He slacked off and more so hated practice as he found no enjoyment in what he was doing in the first place. In reality, he wanted to be a musician, particularly for a punk band. His whole wardrobe and aesthetic is shaped to reflect this dream of his. While we've never heard him play, it's heavily alluded that he's not very good at it. But whether it be baseball or music, 
It was all to pick up women. The only reason he stuck with baseball due to his lack of passion was because it could help lead him to the world of fame and girls would fawn over him. Speaking of girls fawning over him, he did have a particularly close relationship to his cousin, Kanan Nakajima. Since childhood, she had an infatuation and love for Leon, one which she frequently confessed directly to him. However, he always viewed her as more of a younger sister. Her confessions of love never hampered his view of her, and he was often very gentle in rejecting her advances. When Leon started playing baseball, Cannon became the team manager of his so she could watch him play more often. Leon eventually came up with an ultimatum. He agreed to start thinking of her more romantically if she could throw a ball at 160 meters per hour, something he himself was capable of naturally. But it was a goal that seemed impossible, as a woman has never thrown that fast. He said that until she did this, she was not allowed to speak to him. Of course, she agreed. While it seems like Leon may have been a bit harsh here, a sentiment shared by Cannon herself, after over half a year of not speaking, during a family gathering, he casually interacted with her, not nearly taking his stipulation to his bet seriously. Nevertheless, he was rooting for her and believed she could do it. In fact, he promised to help train with her because of this belief. While Cannon always gave it her all during this bet due to truly loving him, Leon's feelings towards her are ultimately left ambiguous. Regardless of where his heart truly lay with love or even talent, the two's story had to get cut short as he was scouted by Hope's Peak as the super high school level baseball player. Aoi Asahina, the ultimate swimming pro. While her talent refers to swimming being her strongest sport, which it is, Hina is largely just a very athletic person all around, having competed in basketball, track, volleyball, tennis, softball, and of course swimming. She broke all kinds of records as a child, which led to her being a young Olympic cadet who one day aims to win a gold medal for swimming in the Olympics. Despite what many would think, she's not driven by an urge to win, but rather she gets her enjoyment from the thrill of the competition itself. It pushes her to be better and reach to become only the best. She spends pretty much all of her time training and conditioning for the sake of her own fitness. She will even do unorthodox things like wearing shorts all year round, even in the winter, to help build her resistance to sicknesses. Despite what sounds like an odd but extremely healthy regimen she keeps herself in to stay in shape, she does have quite the unwavering sweet tooth for donuts. While she fears they will make her fat, she makes sure to train extra hard so she can still enjoy her favorite sweets. Hina does have a younger brother named Yuta, who's also very athletically inclined and similar to her in many ways. However, he's not quite at her level. But nevertheless, her dedication to competition and making herself better in every way possible has earned her the title of super high school level swimmer. Celestia Ludenberg, the ultimate gambler. Born under her real name, Taiko Yasuhiro, she lived in a very common and normal world to a working class family. She loathed this reality and the person she was in it. Because of this, from a very early age, she immersed herself into the world of European royalty. She formed an obsession for the Victorian and Rococo periods of history, and began looking up to historical figures like Marie Antoinette. She changed her birth name of Teiko Yasuhiro to Celestia Ludenberg, began speaking in an ambiguous European accent, and started dressing in Gothic Lolita clothing. Her dream in life became to live in a castle filled with handsome male servants dressed as vampires. But to accomplish such a dream, it required large sums of money. And so she had to utilize a talent that came very naturally to her. 
lying. Celeste was a notorious liar, earning herself the nickname Queen of Liars. Of course, due to her dream and life change, it required her to lie. She said her father was a member of French nobility and her mother was a member of a German family of musicians. She immersed herself in her lies to the point where she wasn't only capable of tricking others, but herself as well. Her talent made her extremely adept in the underground gambling scene. Due to gambling being illegal in Japan, it was a very dangerous profession to have gone into. Nevertheless, she's never lost. Even when faced with life and death consequences in games where she didn't know the rules of how to play, her poker face and given ability to lie always had her come out on top. She robbed the money of all those she's challenged and those who have challenged her. She's accumulated over $10 million, but that's still not enough for her dream. Her cold-blooded nature manages to shine through even further as the person she considers closest to her is her cat, Grand Boy Sherry Ludenberg. It is not her parents, but rather her cat, which she cares the most about. It's always a mystery when speaking to Celeste as it can almost be impossible to separate fact from fiction as she loves to embellish her stories or lie altogether. Her undefeated record speaks for herself, which is why she is the super high school level gambler. Chihiro Fujisaki, the ultimate programmer. Like many, Chihiro was the victim of bullying. Compared to the other boys his age, he had a very small and thin frame, reminiscent to that of a girl. He looked weak, and so the others harassed him, saying he should be a man and that he looked very weak for a boy. The constant harassment got under his skin mentally and caused him to develop a weakness complex. He was tired of how others spoke to him and how it made him feel bad about not being the quintessential image of strength for men. He felt there was nothing he could do, no way to gain the attitude and muscles needed to become macho, so his solution became to hide it. If he was going to be bullied for not being a man, he just wasn't going to be one. He began dressing as a girl, via the clothes and the new image of him, so long as no one knew who he really was, no one bullied him for the way that he looked. The worst scenario, however, was when others found out that she was a he. While this was but a band-aid on a much larger issue, it did not address the root core of his insecurities. He always wished to one day become stronger and not hide behind the facade of a woman. Chihiro, though, was very intelligent, but simultaneously very timid. His weakness was not just one of perception, but reality. He was a physically weak individual. Because so, he wasn't able to play outside with his friends, resulting in much of his time being spent on the computer. He took after his father, Taichi Fujisaki. He was a software engineer that had developed many major computer programs. While using his computer, Chihiro found an incomplete information retrieval system that utilized voice input. This led him to create his own modifications to it, and he soon realized that he could write programs by himself. Chihiro's father praised him for his work, and he finally found something that he could take pride in, and he became absorbed in programming. His natural and hard work gave him fame online, and he gained many fans thanks to the belief that he was a cute girl. Chihiro became popular for creating cutting-edge technology and programs, developing top-secret AIs. After being scouted by Hope's Peak, the resources he was now able to use led him to work on and create many new advances for both himself and the school. Personally, he was working on an AI that could think and act like a normal person, being almost indiscernible from the like. He also had a hand in a project that could download the human consciousness into a virtual world. 
Another smaller role he had in the story earlier was his friendship and assistance with Yuto during the events of Zero. Chihiro was the one who was responsible for figuring out that Junko was the one who sent the messages to all of the Reserve Corps students. However, Yuto refused to involve Chihiro in his investigation any further, not telling him what this information was for, also never mentioning him by name for his own safety. Such talent is what earned him the title of Super High School Level Programmer. Sakura Ogami, the Ultimate Martial Artist Sakura hails from a lineage of fighters. The Ogami family had maintained their dojo for over 300 years. They lived a very simple and old-fashioned lifestyle away from the bustling urban city. They were close to nature with limited interactions to the grander world as a whole. Since birth, a lot of pressure fell on Sakura's shoulders as she was the only girl born into her clan that generation. She felt to prove her worth, she had to become stronger than her male family members. She trained every day as a child with her father in their dojo, sparring against the greatest champions from all different disciplines. Over time, she was able to defeat them all, including her father, by the age of 14. Since then, he's never been able to defeat her again. From that point forward, it became Sakura's sole mission in life to become the strongest human alive. She trained endlessly, valuing the dedication of her craft, paying no mind to how it made her look. Her appearance was irrelevant to her as she was only focused on bettering herself. It's not a look she strove for, but one that was the result of her training. But it gave her a very intimidating physique, which scared both men and women who crossed her path. She's often based physically off of her appearance to be scary and an extremely violent person. Because of this, she never really had any friends and often had trouble socializing. But nevertheless, her eye was focused on proving to the world that a woman could be the strongest human alive. But you see, that title belonged to a street fighter named Kenshiro. No matter what she did, Sakura was incapable of defeating this man, and the two became lifelong rivals. Through the various clashes, the two unexpectedly grew closer. When Kenshiro revealed to her that he himself had inherited an ancient assassination art, it was then that Sakura fell in love with him. An emotion she was deeply embarrassed about. She felt that a fighter like her shouldn't succumb or have such feelings and that others would make fun of her because of them. But Kenshiro reassured her that it was okay for her to have a feminine side and that she doesn't have to be manly, nor a man, to be the strongest human alive. He was her first love. However, tragically, he was diagnosed with a terminal illness with a prognosis of only six months to live. His physical condition deteriorated rapidly and he became thin and weak. Sakura visited him in the hospital where he relinquished his title and passed it on to her, labeling her the strongest human alive. But of course, this was never going to be good enough for Sakura. She vowed to one day earn the title itself by defeating him in battle after he first defeated his disease and regained his strength. This promise pushed her even further to become stronger. She went on to attain an over 400 battle win streak. She did go to the same high school alongside upperclassman Peko Pekoyama, where Sakura too was eventually scouted by Hope's Peak, where she earned the title of Super High School Level Fighter. Toko Fukawa, the Ultimate Riding Prodigy The life of Toko has not been a very pleasant one. Even since birth, her story has been a tragedy. In the hospital she was born in, there was a medical accident and a baby born around the same time as Toko died. 
The doctors didn't know which baby had died, and this caused confusion amongst the two mothers, but to make things worse, both mothers had wanted their babies to die. It became clearer throughout the experience that both of these women had slept with the same man. Uncertain of which of their babies had died, neither one of them wanted to get their blood tested to figure out whose it was. Because of this, Toko grew up under the care of her father and two mothers. Due to her unwanted birth, Toko was mistreated during her youth. She was at one point locked in a broom closet and forced to stay there for three days without food, an experience that resulted in a pathological fear of the darkness. It was precisely this rough and neglectful home life which caused her to develop disassociative identity disorder. In other words, all of her repressed emotions she was holding in manifested themselves as an entirely new persona independent of Toko's own control. This personality was ruthless, angry, and extremely outgoing. While the two shared the same brain and knowledge, their memories were completely independent. Nevertheless, the personality wouldn't become relevant just yet in Toko's life. Due to her constant treatment, Toko formed quite a gloomy and pessimistic view of herself. She formed a bond to her pet stink bug, Kameko, as she believed that the two understood each other's feelings like no one else could. In terms of her school life, she had no friends, and was in fact the victim of bullying from the other students. One such event was in the third grade. A child's lunch money had gone missing, and it was later found in Toko's desk. She was blamed for the incident, and as punishment, she was tied to the jungle gym with a garden hose. She did gain a friend eventually, a boy. This was the first boy she ever loved. He was moving away, the event that made her realize her true feelings towards him. She didn't want to lose him. Too shy to actually confront him with her feelings, she instead opted to write a love letter expressing how she really felt about him. But a dark cloud ever looms over her existence. The next day, the letter she had written was pinned on the bulletin board for the entire school to see. The boy she loved did this as a way to mock her. But you see, everyone has their limits of just how much they can tolerate. This is where her other personality enters the story. She took control and followed the boy to his new home and killed him. This wouldn't be the last time her other personality would do something like this again, but it was her first. This killing set a trend that Toko's other personality took up a hobby in. She began killing boys she thought were handsome, eventually developing her own weapons of choice, being a custom pair of scissors, and a calling card left at every scene of the crime, the word bloodlust written in the victim's own blood. Mystery spread of the serial killer on the loose, and the internet dubbed this figure Genocide Jack. But every story has a silver lining. That note Toko had initially written to her first love was read by her teacher. He was mystified by her literary skills. She had a gifted way with words, a natural talent that poured emotion onto the page. This inspired her to become a writer. As evident by the letter, she found herself writing stories of romance despite never truly experiencing love herself. One of her books, So Lingers the Ocean, was so popular that it shot fishermen to the top of the hottest men polls. She began winning several awards and was always at the top of the highest sellers list. But despite what Genocide Jack was doing for leisure, Toko was still very much Toko, victim to the world and not like the stories of romance she wrote about. Another experience she went through was in the 8th grade. She was unexpectedly asked out by a neighboring classmate, to which she accepted and agreed to go out on a date with. She spent the next three days and nights planning what it was they were going to do. She eventually settled on an action movie, but halfway through the film, 
her date had disappeared. In reality, the boy had lost a bet with his friends and had to ask Toko out as a punishment. This experience only further caused her greater emotional trauma. It's not hard to understand the reason Toko in modern day has a difficult time trusting others, especially when they're overtly nice or complimentary towards her. She sees herself as the trash and scum she's been treated as her whole life, but she's incredibly intellectually gifted, so much so that Hope's Peak saw her talent in writing and she became the super high school level literary girl. Byakuya Togami, the ultimate affluent progeny. Byakuya hails from the very rich and influential financial conglomerate that is the Togami family. They have significant reach and power, even being part of a secret council of global controllers which rule the world from the shadows. But to become the heir, there is a bit of competition amongst siblings. The male head of the family does not marry and wed a single woman, but instead couples with all sorts of various exceptional women from around the globe, each of which produce children of their very own. Byakuya was one of but 15 half-siblings, all potential heirs to the family throne. This competition of battling one another ended with Byakuya as the last one standing, a rarity to behold as the youngest male had never won before. As punishment, all of his other siblings were exiled and stripped of the Togami name, forced to live the lives of commoners. Byakuya slowly began managing various business operations and began investing his money into the stock market. He quickly amassed a personal wealth of over $4 billion. This unnatural cutthroat world he was thrust into gave him a very self-centered personality. He believed everyone was only ever looking out for themselves, thus he had a hard time cooperating with others and understanding more complicated emotions. It seems regardless of his family ties and how he chooses to carry it with pride, his closest connection was with his butler, Aloysius Pennyworth. He was one of the few people Byakuya was capable of genuinely opening up to. Byakuya's sense of superiority and refusal to lose attitude is what earned him the title of super high school level heir. Makoto Naegi, the ultimate lucky student. By all aspects of his world, Makoto was the textbook example of normal. He lived with his parents and younger sister, Komaru. The two used to argue, but had a good relationship watching TV and reading manga together. As mentioned during Sayaka's story, he used to go to the same school as her, where he saved that crane which grabbed her attention. He had a clear crush on her, but what normal boy didn't? He had normal friends at a normal school with a normal family. But all that changed in one day. Hope's Peak was drawing for their annual Ultimate Lucky Student competition, and the winner had already been chosen. For you see, Makoto wasn't initially picked for this category. In fact, it was originally supposed to go to a girl, and her letter of acceptance had already been sent. It was on this day, a particularly unlucky day Makoto considered himself to be having, that fate seemed to take an interest in him. To shake things up from his usual routine, he decided to walk home the long way. He saw a group of his friends playing a game of rock, paper, scissors to determine which of them was to go to the convenience store. Makoto was invited to play and accepted yet again just to do something different. He lost the very first round. The unlucky Makoto was sent to the convenience store to buy food and drinks for everyone where he met an old man. The conversation they have speaks of karma and how bad things don't always happen to bad people and vice versa. Yet again, Makoto's bad luck strikes as his bags rip, spilling the contents within over the pavement. He tried his best to gather everything. The old man eventually left, leaving behind his phone. Doing what any decent citizen would do, Makoto decides to try and return it to him, which eventually leads the both of them onto a bus. 
Upon boarding the bus, Makoto was tired and exhausted from all the running, so much so that he collapses but instinctively grabs onto something nearby to try and catch his fall. But what he latched onto was a bag which ripped open, spilling precious jewelry everywhere. Makoto had stumbled upon a thief named Jutaro Akafuku, a man who has always been blessed with good luck. No matter what situation he found himself in, a strange series of events would always save him. He used that talent to become a thief, but now here he is, caught up in the bad luck of a high school student. After a back and forth hostage situation, the thief eventually flees the bus, stealing a mailman's motorcycle and riding it into the distance to escape. While he wanted to do what was right and chase down the criminal, Makoto had been exhausted from his whole day and chose to stop pursuing him, as he also had no hope of catching up on foot. But then he heard a crash. The thief was launched from the bike, and the bike itself exploded, burning all of the letters the mailman was carrying. It turns out the cause of the criminal's accident was a can that fell from Makoto's ripped bag back at the convenience store. Makoto couldn't believe that his own bad luck triumphed over all of the planning and good luck of this criminal. But what happened to the lucky student chosen to attend Hope's Peak? Well, as it turns out, her letter of acceptance was burnt in an accident with a jewelry thief who stole a mailman's motorcycle. Seeing the irony in this, her invitation was reconsidered, and a new draw was held. The winner was Makoto Naegi. He was accepted into the school as Class 78's super high school level good luck. These 14 students were all set for Junko's next killing game. While it initially seems cruel and cold-hearted on her end to put her fellow classmates through this, in reality, she cared deeply for them all. It is because she's come to love them through the time that they've spent together, through the experiences that they've all shared, that she purposely made them all survive the tragedy. Unlike with Class 77, she wanted to have a personal hand in their despair and treasure it. The more she cares about someone, the more despair she wants them to feel. With the headmaster dead, one by one, she used the information she learned from Matsuda to erase all of the memories her classmates ever had of each other. The whole two years, gone. The last thing they remember was their first day at Hope's Peak. Kyoko's case was slightly different. Being the ultimate detective, Junko felt as though that might be a problem, and she got rid of her memories of which ultimate she was. Mukuro was also meant to disguise herself as Junko while her sister controlled Monokuma from behind the scenes. And with that, the curtains rose, and the killing school life of Class 78 began. Everything begins with the groggy students experiencing the after-effects of losing their memories. Believing it to be their first day of school, all of the students gather together and make introductions. Makoto almost instinctively notices Mukuro's disguise as she didn't seem like the model he'd seen photos of. But nevertheless, what seems like a perfectly normal first day of high school is only sullied by Monokuma who explains the situation they're in. They are to spend the rest of their lives in the school with no contact to the outside world. If they want to be freed, all they have to do is kill someone and get away with it. This time around, the killing school life is much more refined than that of the student council. Junko felt that one was too chaotic and lacked order. So with Class 78, she implemented rules. These ensured things didn't end too quickly, but more importantly, also created hope. The sense that the game that they were a part of wasn't permanent and they could overcome it. Because the stronger the hope people have, the more despair they'll feel in the end when it fails. 
While initially everyone is in disbelief of such a ridiculous setup, this was foreseen and Junko had planned of a way to show that this was serious. She felt things might need a little assistance to get started. She blackmailed Sakura using her family dojo and loved ones as leverage. For exchange in making sure that they were safe, she was to provoke and possibly kill someone to start the killing game. Also, the entire thing is being broadcast to the outside world. Yet again, to show how the last symbols of hope are going to spread despair. Of course, in Junko's case, everyone needs a little push and incentive. Within the year inside of the school, the ultimate despair had captured everyone's loved ones to use for motive. And it was the first motive provided. After a few days of settling in, everyone was shown videos of those closest to them. Family, pets, lovers... Whoever it was had since been kidnapped by the ultimate despair. Their fate was left ambiguous, perhaps on the verge of death. The only way to find out what really happened was to kill and graduate. While Sakura was meant to kick things off herself, Sayaka's life was her idol group. They were more than just friends, they were her everything. Having known Makoto in the past, the two were close in the beginning of this experience, but it didn't take long after seeing the video before she began plotting a murder. She intended to swap rooms with Makoto and lure an unsuspecting victim to his room where she would kill them, framing Makoto as the murderer. And that's exactly what she did. Her victim was Leon Kuwata, the ultimate baseball star. She had become aware of his crush on her and figured that he'd willingly stop by her room if asked. The plan initially went very well until it came time for the actual murder. Leon was a natural athlete, making his reflexes quicker than most. When Sayaka attacked him, he was capable of defending himself with a replica sword and turned the tides in his favor. Sayaka retreated into the bathroom for safety, but Leon pursued her to the end. He broke in and stabbed her. As a dying message, she wrote his name on the wall, telling everyone who killed her. She didn't want Makoto to be blamed for her death, and she did so to prove his innocence. It is during the midst of this murder that another plan of Junko's was meant to take place. She needed a way to showcase to everyone the severity of following the rules of the game, and so Mukuro was meant to disobey and break one of the rules in front of everyone. As a punishment, she was supposed to be trapped in a dungeon in order to set an example to not rebel. From here, the two could control things together. But when Mukuro proceeded with this plan, on a whim, Junko decided to kill her own sister for real, impaling her with the spears of Gungnir. Mukuro never expected this to happen, and it was a true shock. In the end, she thought her sister didn't love her. The truth was the opposite. Similar to Yasuke, Junko killed Mukuro because she loved her. She wanted both of them to feel despair. The betrayal of a sister. The loss of a loved one. It was all for the sake of despair. And with that, the students understood the weight of the scenario they were in. Mukuro was killed, and the investigation commenced. Despite Leon's best attempts to hide evidence, such damning proof inevitably convicted him, and he was executed via the Thousand Blows. Due to Junko broadcasting the killing school life, people in the outside world saw what was happening and they wanted to stop it. Various others outside attempted to help the students inside from the cruel game, specifically old staff like Koichi. He figured after seeing what has happened, the worst must have happened to Jin and he was dead. So as he promised long ago, he would look out for Kyoko. And so various attempts were made to try and break them out, but the school's defenses were much too strong. While it is heard on the inside by the likes of Hiro, Monokuma is capable of dismissing it as mere construction. 
Motive number two were the character's embarrassing memories and shameful secrets. Toko's serial killer split personality, Mondo's brother's sacrifice, Jihiro's true gender. Strength is the theme of this chapter. Jihiro wishes to become strong just like Mondo. To him, he is the essence of manly. Instead of letting the motive drive him into fear, he uses it to better himself. While Sakura and Hina offered many times to train with him, due to actually being a boy, he wasn't allowed in the girls' locker room per the rules. As for Mondo, his motive did get the better of him. Chihiro discloses the truth of his secret and asks that he train him. Mondo does agree, but after seeing the true strength Chihiro possesses, his own insecurities overwhelm him. For Mondo to continue on his gang, he must believe his lie and facade of strength. In a blind rage, he accidentally kills Chihiro. It was an accident, but one he could not take back. As his last act of courtesy, he drugged Chihiro's body to the girls' locker room to protect his secret. Byakuya would stumble upon this and tamper with the crime scene. He since uncovered Genocide Jack's personality and wished to expose it to the group, but also Gage who was the biggest threat to him in this killing game. If someone figured out that he had messed with the crime scene, they would be a problem in the future. In the end, Mondo isn't capable of getting away with murder, though it's not exactly as though he tried. All the secrets are revealed about Mondo and Chihiro, and he is executed via the Cage of Death. While Chihiro may have died, he would have a lasting impact. During his time trapped in the school, he had been working on the creation of Alter Ego, his personal project of a learning AI that was almost the exact same as him, capable of personality and independent intelligence. The characters would uncover its existence and use it to try and uncover the secrets of what's going on. The third motive is much more classic, a simple exchange of money. The student who kills another will get a reward of $10 million. Likely, Junko just took this money from the steering committee that they had been scamming from the reserve course. To many, the money means nothing, but to one girl, it means she's one step closer to her dream. Despite being a gambler who's accrued millions of dollars, 10 million is still 10 million and would help pay for her castle in Europe. Ever since the game started, Celeste spoke of how everyone should accept their condition, but secretly she was always plotting her escape. She used Alter Ego as a hostage, or more accurately, a lie. Taka and Hifumi had each fallen for Alter Ego in their own ways, Hifumi developing romantic feelings, and Taka overcame the grief he had after the death of Mondo. Celeste tricked Hifumi, telling him how Taka sexually assaulted her, and he was planning to steal Alter Ego. As a staged plan, he killed Taka with the expectation that Celeste and he were working together. In reality, Celeste double-crossed him and killed him herself. She was hoping to hide her crime in the feud the two were having. But it was all for naught. She was found out, her true identity was revealed, and she was executed in the burning of the Versailles Witch. Through the experiences the remaining students had shared, Sakura felt ashamed for the betrayal of their trust as she's come to consider them all friends. As resistance, she chose to fight back against Monokuma, not willing to be his mole anymore. This would prove to be the next motive, an eye for an eye. He told everyone that she was working for him. It effectively did exactly what he was hoping. It spread doubt, confusion, and arguments between everyone. The only ones who stood behind her were Makoto and Aoi. The likes of Byakuya, Toko, and Hiro all lost trust for her and treated her with disdain. The split amongst everyone escalated to heated arguments and even sometimes physical attacks. Sakura realized her existence was the problem. Everyone was becoming more distant because of her. 
So instead, she chose to do the only thing she thought was right. To fulfill her contract with Monokuma and unify everyone together again, she took her own life. She did as Monokuma asked and killed someone, thus protecting her dojo and loved ones, while also putting an end to the squabbling of her friends. She left a dying message to let everyone know how she believes in them and their ability to take down the mastermind. Junko obviously considers this boring and steals the letter Sakura wrote, leaving behind a fake one, making it seem as though she really hated everyone in her final moments, complicating the trial. Hina goes out of her way to try and lead everyone astray to get everyone killed, believing they deserve it for driving her to suicide. But in the end, the truth is found out about Sakura's real feelings. As a special punishment, Monokuma knew of Alter Ego's existence and presents him as a special guest execution. And he is killed in Excavator Destroyer. Chapter 5 takes on a new twist. While Junko was content in letting the students' own distrust turn them on each other, Kyoko has been nothing but a thorn in her side since the game began. While she had no memory of being the ultimate detective, she by nature has been conditioned to always dig for answers. And that's precisely what she's been doing. Thanks to a final act done by Sakura by breaking down the headmaster's door, Kyoko was capable of procuring documents on Mukuro Ikusaba, slowly piecing together the trickery of this whole setup. Junko needed a way to dispose of Kyoko, but she couldn't just kill her. The whole thing was being broadcast and Junko must obey the rules of her own game. So instead, she tried to frame her for murder. The plan was to kill Makoto. But when she went to do so, she was thwarted and his life was saved. Junko is now forced to improvise and break her own rules. She took Mukuro's dead corpse and staged the incident to make it seem like Kyoko murdered her. The plan almost worked, but it was her own belief in despair which didn't foresee Makoto protecting Kyoko by lying. During the class trial, he took the fall for her as both of them saw that the execution of Kyoko was exactly what they wanted. Of course, Makoto didn't want to die either, but disrupting the Mastermind's plans was their main motivation. Forced to pick a blackened, Makoto was sent to be executed. However, thanks to the interference of Alter Ego, who had hacked into the school systems before being executed, he saves Makoto's life, and he simply plummets to the school's basement. Fortunately for the ultimate lucky student, his life was saved. It didn't take long before Kyoko quickly followed suit as well to check on his well-being and thank him for his willingness to protect her. Fortunately, this event does have a silver lining. The Mastermind has been cornered for having broken their own rules. Kyoko brings Makoto in front of Monokuma to spell it all out. The false accusation, the attempt to make it seem like she did it. A retrial is asked for them and for all of the viewers watching around the world. A request that cannot be refused. Monokuma agrees that the trial of Mukuro Ikusaba is redone, but the only way to actually put an end to everything is to solve the mystery of the entire school. What happened? Why are they locked in? Who is the mastermind? Every last question to understand their predicament is needed if they want to leave. To Junko's credit, she did allow them to explore the academy to their heart's content because, as stated, she wants them to feel hope to feel as though the destination is just within reach, only to have it taken from them in the final moments. Kyoko does discover the death of her father. While she always held contempt for him, she is still uncharacteristically saddened by his death, even to her own confusion. By the time the class trial rolls around, the truth comes spilling out. Junko's identity is unveiled, and the state of the world is shown to them. The characters are in disbelief that the outside world had ended. 
that it had become a lawless and bloodthirsty environment. Notable developments have taken part on Junko's character as she now has multiple personas she likes to swap to as she's become so tired and bored of her one. Also, in an ironic sense, she's become very apathetic to her whole plan because it was all going according to plan. Despite being the unpredictable force of entertainment she wanted, it was still all too predictable. Inevitably, after feeling backed into a corner, Junko makes one final proposal to everyone. She paints the picture that it would be impossible to survive outside, that if they really did want to live, they'd have to do so inside of the school. She makes it out so if only a single person wants to punish Makoto, then everyone else will get to live out the rest of their lives inside the safety of the school. If not, then the building will become uninhabitable and the air purifiers will stop, forcing them to gamble with their survival outside. By the end of it all, Makoto convinces everyone to believe and have hope in each other, that together they can face whatever adversities are thrown at them. And with that, they all vote to punish Junko. She experiences one last immeasurable euphoria of despair as her plans fail, and thus she is executed in the ultimate punishment. With that, the surviving six members, Makoto Naegi, Kyoko Kiragiri, Byakuya Togami, Toko Fukawa, Aoi Asahina, and Yasuhiro Hagakure put an end to the killing school life, having used hope to overcome and defeat the ultimate despair. Makoto was then no longer referred to as the ultimate lucky student, but the ultimate hope. Together, they all took steps into their future. It didn't take long after their escape before the Future Foundation came to their aid and rescued them. As the figurehead Junko had fallen, those part of the ultimate despair around the world followed suit. Most committed suicide. Comparatively, very few lived. Those who did were now known as the Remnants of Despair. Class 77 were amongst those survivors. The ultimate despair's influence weakened and the Future Foundation strengthened. Despite this, though, those survivors' loyalty only further resolved. In fact, while Junko had gone through the ultimate punishment, resulting in her body being battered and crushed, a slight retcon was made. Somehow, her body survived the whole experience and was largely undamaged. This is because Class 77 scavenged her for parts to express their undying love for her. Fuyuhiko replaced one of his eyes with hers. Mikan replaced her personal ovaries so she could bear her children. Nagito was slightly different. He replaced one of his arms with Junko, but slightly less due to love and more hatred for her despair. Not everyone resorted to physical transplants. Others showed their devotion in other ways. Akane starved herself to feel despair, Soda gunned people down, and similar actions go for the others as well. They would continuously spend their time attempting to carry on Junko's legacy, spreading despair around the globe. As for Makoto and the others, after being rescued by the Future Foundation and learning their goal of fighting against despair, the six joined their ranks and became members of the 14th Division with Kyoko as their leader. Aoi took up a role in the 13th Division, and Toko was a special case. Due to Genocide Jack, she was forced to start out as an intern. But it was thanks to the Future Foundation that everyone got their memories restored to them. It was Byakuya's job to deal with public relations. He was to spread news of the Future Foundation's activities to the public. But he did have another task. 
One of the major jobs he went on was the location and recovery of the loved ones captured for his class's killing game. Everything eventually led to Toa City. The Toa group had a large hand in the rebuilding of the world after the tragedy, but that was largely thanks to being involved with it themselves. Monica Toa was responsible for the mass manufacturing of the Monokuma units. She also started creating brainwashing helmets which controls its wearers to become obedient slaves. Her father discovered the Monokuma's true purpose and tried to stop its production early on. However, Monica blackmailed him, threatening to expose the fact that the Toa group was responsible for all the murderous Monokumas destroying the world. She instead swayed him to her side. She convinced him to continue making the Monokumas as well as weapons to fight against them. They secretly continued aiding the ultimate despair while also being hailed as heroes amongst the public for fighting against them. They gained honor, money, and protection from the ultimate despair. While they were the heroes fighting against the tragedy to the public, behind the scenes, they were some of Junko's biggest supporters. After Junko's death, he tried to pull out of his alliance, but Monica used the Monokumas to murder him. Toa City was always secretly in her control, even over the Warriors of Hope. Her fellow classmates had all dedicated themselves to Junko after she saved them. Once she was dead, they were lost. It was Monica who convinced them that they should create a peaceful paradise for children and kill all of the adults. For it was adults who made them what they are. Nagisa Shingetsu Little Ultimate Social Studies was supposed to be the perfect child and become one of society's elites. His father worked in Hope's Peak and he was experimenting to see just how much mental and physical stress a child could be put through before they reached a breaking point. Nagisa was forced to study non-stop for days. He was connected to an IV to ensure he had the energy to continue. If he looked tired, bright lights would get shown into his eyes, and he was subject to physical punishment via weapons as well. Despite everything he was put through, he wasn't putting up the results his father wanted and considered him a failure. Him and his wife even contemplated having a second child to retry the experiment again. After learning this, Nagisa believed his failures were his fault. He began to hate himself and felt tremendous amounts of guilt. He inevitably decided to ignore his emotions and work harder to never disappoint his father again. But it didn't quite work as he almost did commit suicide back at Hope's Peak. Jotaro Kimuri, Little Ultimate Art, was a regretful birth. His mother still had dreams of what she wanted to do in life. But with a son, she couldn't. Her life became nothing more than a platform for his. Every night she wished for him to be dead, to succumb to some sort of illness, or just disappear. But it never happened. Worst of all for her, he was beautiful. She thought it was some kind of cruel excuse the universe was making up to her as for why she should love her child. And so she forced him to wear a mask. She was ashamed to ever show him or his face to anyone, saying he didn't look like the other children and convincing him that he was truly ugly. He began accepting and welcoming hate as it was the only thing he knew and the only thing that protected him from the reality of his home life. To him, the more hates he gets, the more at peace he is. Masaru Daimon, Little Ultimate P.E. was an all-around athlete, but he was kind of forced to be. Growing up under the roof of an alcoholic father, Daimon was forced to help his father's drinking habit. Unable to afford alcohol, he stole. This put the family on the wrong side of the police, which only made his father angrier and more physically abusive towards him. 
Kotoko Utsugi, Little Ultimate Drama, was a child actress very popular due to her cuteness. But she just wanted to be a normal child. She got into acting for the sake of her mother and the money it earned her. But it was through a cruel and twisted belief her mother used her daughter. She saw youth as a great and horrifying power that should be used to its advantage while one still had it. Which is why she prostituted Kotoko at the age of 10. As a twisted form of parental love, her mother also prostituted herself in a mother-daughter set. Doing so ensured her daughter's career strived. This understandably traumatized her and she developed a trigger to the term gentle as the men would often use that to describe their actions. It is for these reasons this group was so easily convinced to commit suicide back at Hope's Peak and found genuine love from Junko to the point of worship. At her death, Monica became the group's leader and began manipulating them for her own goals. She wanted to create a successor to Junko and she thought that the perfect symbol to do so was the sister of the person who just took her down, Komaru Naegi. She wanted to turn her into a Junko 2.0 and make her a symbol for despair. She allowed the other Warriors of Hope to have a little fun and get revenge on those who hurt them in their past, adults. The demon hunting game was thought up where the Monokumas and other Warriors of Hope would go around killing all of the adults to create their child paradise. The Future Foundation was also an obstacle, so she tipped them off as to the hostages' locations and Byakuya's team was lured into a trap. It is also important to note that Nagito Kamoeda had since been kidnapped by the Warriors of Hope and has been forced to be their slave. Monica used him to guide Komaru through their demon hunting game. But for you see, while Junko may be gone, she still had an ace up her sleeve. Long within her school life with her class, she was observing particularly Chihiro. He had been working on the creation of Alter Ego and it came to life during the events of the first game. Through first-hand observation and taking a deeper look into the code, Junko, thanks to her analytical prowess, had managed to create an Alter Ego of herself. Monika Toa was in possession of it and placed it into two separate and unique Monokuma bears, respectively named Shirokuma and Kurokuma. Together, they were to fan the flames of war one manipulating the side of the children, the other the side of the adults. Yet another tragedy was to come. And all this comes to fruition in the events of Ultra Despair Girls. Byakuya leads a team to rescue all of the loved ones kidnapped. Komaru is freed from her imprisonment when she is attacked by a Monokuma. Fortunately for her, he arrives just in time to save her life. However, it comes at a trade-off. Byakuya is subsequently captured. He is then held captive by the Warriors of Hope. Nagito also has a bit of luck on his side. He runs into Toko, who had stowed away on this mission, where he tells her that they are in possession of Byakuya. He makes a deal, saying that they'll release him if she safely escorts Komaru to their stronghold. She agrees and is told where to find her. With the Future Foundation in their trap and Komaru in the city, it was time for Monika to enact her plan. The Monokumas were released throughout Toa City, causing utter mayhem, killing every single adult they could find. Children were equipped with brainwashing helmets, making them obedient to the Warriors of Hope's demand. Komaru is almost capable of escaping via helicopter, however, it crash lands and she is taken in by Nagito. She, alongside all of the other captives, are equipped with explosive bracelets and forced to participate in their demon hunting game. Komaru was then dropped via airship, where she ran into Toko, who Nagito tipped off. 
The two work together, experiencing the cruel massacring of adults and the absolute state of fear they're constantly in, running into other Class 78 hostages along the way. They inevitably ally themselves with the likes of Haiji Toa, Monica's brother, who runs a resistance group of adult survivors to fight back against the kids. Shirokuma is amongst this group, moonlighting as their ally. In reality, this is exactly what Junko and Monica wanted, placing Komaru in the midst of a war. Together, Toko and Komaru meet many allies along the way, not all of which survive. Yuta Asahina, Aoi's brother, unfortunately gets blown up by his bracelet attempting to swim to the mainland for help. There's also the likes of Taichi Fujisaki, Chihiro's father, who helps the group establish contact with the Future Foundation. But he also unfortunately dies in an attack by Monokumas. Hiroko Hagakure is part of Haiji's resistance and helps track down the other wanted captives, rescuing them off-screen. While Toko's purpose was leading Komaru to the stronghold, throughout their journey she had actually become fond of her and couldn't betray the trust she had put in her, as she had become her only friend. So instead, she tried to help her escape, as Komaru had been wanting since leaving her apartment. However, Nagito couldn't let that happen. He reveals the truth about Toko's deception and tries to turn Genocide Jack on Komaru. However, despite being different personalities, they still share the same emotion, and instead, she turns on Nagito. As a sign of their friendship, Komaru chooses not to abandon Toko, but instead help her rescue Byakuya. While the Warriors of Hope are slowly defeated one by one, the truth of the situation slowly becomes clearer. The adults have begun to build up more confidence and resources to fight against the kids, and the kids are actually just victims in this all the same. Everything eventually leads to a face-off with Monica, who tries to get Komaru to fall into despair. She shows her a video of her parents' dead bodies, which shakes her to the very core, almost completely succumbing her to despair. The only option left was to save the adults or save the children. Both scenarios resulted in death. By destroying the master control, all of the Mono Kid's helmets would explode, killing them all. If she didn't, they remained brainwashed. Komaru inevitably decides not to destroy the controller as she wants to protect everyone and will work personally to make sure peace is achieved. The Big Bang Monokuma, which had since been taken over by Shirokuma, was destroyed by Toko along with Kurokuma's robot. And the building is left, collapsing on Monika. By the end of the game, Byakuya is saved. Komaru and Toko both decide to stay behind in the city and keep word of what happened a secret from the Future Foundation. If word got out, the remnants of despair would surely show up and cause yet another needless war. She leaves off hopeful, wanting to fight back against despair. She wishes her brother and Byakuya good luck in fighting against the remnants. As for the Warriors of Hope, they all lived. However, they had learned of Monica's deception and decided to work against her together. Monica was saved by Nagito, who decided to raise her to become the next Junko herself and become even better than she was. But it didn't take long before Monica thought that he was just weird and had no interest in becoming the next Junko. The game ends with both Shirokuma and Kurokuma noting how their plan failed, before they are each stepped on by Izuru Kamakura. For you see, his journey still has yet to yield an answer. Hope versus despair has raged on, but there was still no winner. He wanted definitive answers, and so he sought to experience it himself. He stole Junko's alter ego AI, and had planned to get conclusive answers once and for all. 
It's also important to note a smaller side story that was occurring parallel to the events of this game. Hiro was amongst the several members of the Future Foundation sent to Toa to rescue the captives. However, early upon arriving, he split off to steal some valuables to sell to pay off his debt. It was during this time that all hell broke loose and the demon hunting game began. Being almost completely inept alone, he was almost killed by the Monokumas running around. However, he was saved by the likes of Kanon Nakajima, Leon's cousin and respective captive. Kanon has since come to learn of Leon's death and she blamed the Future Foundation for it. Because of her complete obsession with him, she vowed to take down and kill the Future Foundation members. Upon meeting Hiro, she was completely unaware of his affiliation with the organization and helped him survive the onslaught of robots. They would even face off against several of the Warriors of Hope on several occasions.